0: VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Wednesday, March the 8th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Fons King is back in the producer's chair again today. uh, Fons will be the voice on the other end of the line when you give us a call to get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86. 26, well, it looks like going to be a windy, rainy, old, wet, sloppy day out there today. Uh, let's move to Labrador for the first story this morning. Like, we spoke with Chris Lacey, the uh, organizer of the Kane's Quest 3500km Endurance Snowmobile Race in Labrador. So there's a low-pressure system over the area, and so the conditions are less than favorable and less than safe. So they had paused and started and paused and started the race a couple of times, and now Kane's Quest has been cancelled. The forecast doesn't look like conditions will will improve. i tell you what. Some of the folks in the region have been in contact with me throughout this, really questioning the decision for the snowmobiles to be out there in the first place, given some of the open water and the the, uh, treacherous snow conditions or the lack thereof in some portions of the race. So it's been cancelled. You know, the one story, it's already a grueling race to begin with, but you think about the harrowing incident for that team from Finland. I think team 66. One of the team members in the water. So they were some 30 kilometers short of Port Hope Simpson, their next checkpoint, and going along on the black ice at the black of night, couldn't see a bloody thing. Next thing you know, open water. Any goes sled gone had to swim to safety. So, when that story and the number of hours that some of the teams waited to be rescued. ...is really quite something. So some of the folks that have been writing me emails and private messages on Twitter and what have you... ...they are saying that there was never any legitimate reason to restart that race... ...given the conditions they could see where they were. People sending me pictures that is really quite clear. Portions of the route that are absolutely open water. Now we know some people take it upon themselves to skim across the bay and what have you on their sled... ...which is already dangerous enough. But when some of the races competed at night... To know that some open water might be in front of you. I mean, I heard the interview with one of the Finnish team members about what happened to his buddy that was right in front of him. So, okay, it's cancelled, but I think there's going to be some large, looming questions about even restarting that particular race. If you're in the area, or one of the competitors, and you want to talk about it, we're more than happy to have you on the show this morning. Let's stick with the ice where there's actually some ice up in London, Ontario at the Briar. So, Team Young got to win. So they're 1-5. They beat the Northwest Territories. They play undefeated Manitoba, Team Dunstone today. Guzhu 5-1 and one at the top of his pool. But apparently Brad overdid it, as he says, at the pre-training for the Briar. And consequently, he's got some pain that is potentially going to bleed into some possible misses if he doesn't come out of the hack with the slide that we're used to seeing from one of the all-time great curlers. So Guzhu in a good spot at 5-1 all the same. All right. Today in history, 1971... Joe Frazier met Muhammad Ali in Madison Square Gardens for what was called the fight of the century. Both undefeated coming into this. Ali had won 31 straight, and Frazier pretty much battered him. They had a unanimous decision after 15 rounds. Imagine the heavyweights used to go 15 rounds. So, of course, that was only the first fight of their amazing trilogy. Fight number two was dubbed the Revenge, and Ali really took it to Frazier that night. So they're one and one. And, of course, the third fight between the two legends took place in Manila and was dubbed the Thriller in Manila. It got its, you know, Ali was famous for all the rhymes he would bring to bear, so it was something about, it's going to be a killer when I get the chiller and the gorilla in Manila. And, of course, Ali beats Fraser to take the trilogy two fights to one. The corner for Joe Frazier, Smoke and Joe, asked the ref to stop it after 14 rounds. He was virtually blind, could not see a thing, so the fight of the century happened today in 71. Another interesting one. We've been talking stock exchange stuff. It was 196 years ago today, on this date in history, that the New York Stock and Exchange Board was formally founded. 25 years prior, there were some 24 individual stockbrokers used to meet under a buttonwood tree in Lower Manhattan. Now, at this point, there's some $30 trillion in market capitalization, some 2,800 stocks listed on the exchange. It's the largest stock exchange in the world. And actually, some of the origins for the ticker tape parades in downtown uh, Manhattan took place because the material that transmitted stock prices over the telegraph lines was used as the ticker tape. So, and that's where the ticker tape parade name comes from. So, I mentioned that stock exchange story because I'm getting a lot of confusing questions, and I can't really uh, answer them because I'm not entirely sure about the new strategy that the province has employed to try to offset some borrowing costs by posting some $1 billion in bonds on the London Stock Exchange. So the Premier says we're in a better spot, and okay, we'll see what comes on Budget Day, and some of the risk mitigation measures that are in place. But I was a little bit surprised when reading about other provinces in the country with how they try to, quote-unquote, diversify their borrowing portfolio. Now, with this province going to London on the Stock Exchange, it's only PEI that doesn't have a European borrowing plan or strategy. All the other provinces were already doing it. So if it's a good thing and saves us some money in servicing our debt we borrow at a lower cost, of course that's good for everybody because that money can be spent elsewhere as opposed to simply with our lenders to service the debt. And the province has to reorganize, renegotiate some $8 billion in debt over the next 10 years. But I'm getting a lot of questions about it, and I've apologized via email that I'm not so sure. The people that I called who are much more uh, informed on that front, they say this is a very good idea. Now, I guess that remains to be seen, but if you want to tackle that, we can absolutely do that today. Okay, we have uh, Minister of Health Tom Osborne coming up at some point this morning. I think Fonce told me it's around 11 o'clock. He wants to come on to discuss. I'm not exactly sure. But, you know, there are a lot of gaps in the system, and if you'd like to pose a particular issue to broach with Minister Osborne, happy to do that today. But, you know, you also look around for what are best practices. And it seems to me that in Atlantic Canada in particular, Nova Scotia is doing some of these think-outside-the-box, taking very proactive measures to deal with a variety of things, including they've legislated now that the long-term care system is not allowed to separate couples upon coming into long-term care, even if they have different medical requirements. So that's one thing. The minister here in this province said, we can't legislate something that we can't deliver on, but I think I heard him reference during the VOC morning show that some news on that front is coming. At with the unbelievably terrible story that we heard last week about this one gentleman who was battered and bruised after taking a serious beating and the dementia ward in the long term care facility that he resides in. Just this morning, open up yet another email, and at this time it was a woman who was on the receiving end and apparently an awful beating. So when the social worker was approached in that story last week, just to say, Well there's nothing could be done, that's simply not good enough. There has to be something that we can do. So I don't know exactly what the answers are. More secure surroundings for the residents and whether people need to be protected from other residents who have a history of violent outbursts. And, you know, I think there's compassion to be shown on both fronts because if some person really unaware of what they're doing, given the status of their dementia or their Alzheimer's, does something like this, of course in their normal course of operations throughout their life, maybe never a single violent outburst in their background, but it's happening. So we've got to understand what's going on and we've got to figure it out. Just imagine the family of those two particular incidents that I'm speaking to this morning, but everyone else who has a loved one on one of these wards. And now when they hear the stories wondering, what about if tomorrow morning I wake up to a phone call telling me that's happened to my mom or dad, my nan or pop? So we've got to put that out there. And in the world of best practices, once again, you know, we've got all these problems with licensing and accreditation for doctors, whether it be coming from other countries or from around uh, our own country. So in Nova Scotia, once again, they have figured it out. Their college of uh, physicians and surgeons has said that now they are going to allow doctors trained and practicing in the United States to come to Nova Scotia, not have to challenge the Royal College exams, but their accreditation will allow them to simply come and go to work. So the one quote is sort of interesting. It says, If you were a professor at Harvard in cardiology and you wanted to come to Nova Scotia and get in touch with your Celtic roots, imagine how insulted you'd be if we were told you have to challenge the World College exams before you get a full license. Now, again, practicing in the modern world, the United States or in this country or in Ireland where their doctors seem to be choosing Australia over coming to Canada, so this just makes sense. And then there's Canadians who were trained abroad, not only in the United States, and unable to get a residency position. Something has just got to give. We've got too many barriers that are pretty nonsensical that are keeping the doctor shortages alive and well, which is a terrible way to put it, but that's exactly what's going on. So best practices in Nova Scotia might be something we can mimic because, of course, there's going to be people from this province who couldn't get one of the ultra-competitive seats at our medical school, went somewhere else, And they look at all the hurdles and the time and the money and the frustration to come home to practice. And so consequently, they've just not even considered it. So something has to change on that front, and I'm sure you'll agree. All right, and sticking with healthcare, the stories regarding the ambulance services are piling up. So now we know that Ryan's Ambulance Service and their parent company's Fewers and their ambulance out in Cape Royal hasn't been staffed for quite a long time. And so it's going to be withdrawn in full. And what's going to replace it? We don't know. So there's a couple of curious comments coming from the minister and his office about the lack of information that the folks on the southern shore had. You know, I think there was some reference to the fact that they couldn't put out a public service announcement necessarily, but my question is, why not? Because if we have people on the shore, regardless, just pick a community, and they know that the likelihood of getting an ambulance from as close as Holy Road may indeed be as far away as St. John's, And so they could have made decisions much better for them and their family. So if you thought that it was going to take upwards of 90 minutes to get an ambulance, even if you got in the car, met the ambulance halfway, even if you were able to shave 45 minutes off the emergency treatment that your loved one needs, they may have done that. So I guess we have to figure it out again. These whole comments about news is coming. News has been brewing on the ambulance issue for years. It's about time we try to clear this up whether it's just one public entity and that's that, and communities have a service they can rely on, and there won't be spats that require uh, going back to the House of Assembly for legislation to deem the folks uh, working inside of Teamsters Local 855 as an essential service because it's simply not good enough. Now, it's fine to say you can call 911 and we'll get to you, but time is of the essence when you have an emergency. And then even making reference to maybe call 811 to find out what you should do, whether you should or need to present that emergency room, of course, and if that's the case, fine. People might need some comforting, and might need some information. They might need some guidance, but it comes at a significant cost too. If you call eight one one, and the outcome of that call is well, go to the doctor. So at that point, we paid phone made eighty two bucks, then go to a doctor, and the doctor bills M C P. So the costs start to add up quite quickly. So you want to put something forward for the minister? We can do it. And I tell you what, I didn't, I didn't really know what an urgent care clinic was. But apparently, that's going to be what replaces emergency room services in Whitburn. That emergency room has been closed for the most part since June 27th of last year. So urgent care, you know, it would be nice to have a better understanding of exactly what that means. But when the decision is made on that front and an evaluation of the patients that presented at the emergency room at the WH Newhook Community Centre in Whitburn, and it's deemed to be some 80 to 90% of people who went to that emergency room before the diversions began, they could be addressed through urgent care. And the obvious question stemming from that is, let's just use 80%. What about the 20%? Now, I know recruitment and retention is going to be all the rage in every conversation we have here, but even this is going to be three days a week, Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays. So they're hoping to uh, bring it to a five-day offering in Whitburn. They're hoping to bring it to a seven-day offering. But, you know, if there's going to be a physician, a nurse practitioner, and a registered nurse, walk-in and scheduled appointments will be available at the clinic. What is the difference between urgent care? Like, what's missing in the equation for it to be whatever urgent care means and an emergency room? So... Mayor Hilda Whelan, not Whitburn, is, as Brian McDowr said in the newscast, not pulling any punches. And the frustration, I'm sure, is, uh, from Mayor Whalen stems from the frustration and the worry for the residents of the community. You want to tackle it? Let's go. This one has long been a concern, and it's regarding the compensation for Mount Cashel victims. And we all know the story: the selling off of the church properties. and They've raised some thirty million dollars. They think they'll need another twenty for the one hundred so or so victims of the violence and the assaults and the brutality at Mount Cashel. And now the concern was, what happens to the province's schools? It's owned by the the Episcopal Corporation, but via legislation it was always ensured that those schools would remain schools as long as those buildings are used for education. But that's been squabbled about in court and now lawyers representing the province have been told that they can indeed now go ahead with making formal offerings so that the province will buy the schools, and consequently some 30 schools from St. John's to Marystown will continue to be exactly that. So I guess that's good news, but we look no one begrudges compensation for the victims, but now the province is going to have to buy these some 30 schools to keep them open and in operation, and that's a big one. Uh, This might not be a big deal to folks around the province, but the story was was big and it had a lot of legs here in this area and that's about the old wicked bright lights, unnecessarily bright lights, the blinding lights down in the outer battery. The young fellow who was charged with mischief, damaging property, and trespassing at night, his name is James Drover. He basically just tried to change the angle of the lights so that they weren't shining bright into people's homes, so he jiggled them around, it was seen on tape, the lights didn't turn off, there was no damage, so the charges have been dropped. So his attorney, Steve Marshall, and I'm sure James himself, are tickled pink that this has gone by the wayside. Like, no one wants to promote vigilantism, but he was a bit of a local hero in some corners, and his charges have gone away. But that does not mean that the city, in this case, has done what's required to petition the provincial government, which said they were completely on side with amending the the City of St. John's Act to ensure some of this nuisance stuff could be dealt with, as opposed to the long-drawn issue that was those stupid bright lights, but his charges have gone away. Okay, it's International Women's Day, and happy International Women's Day to you. A couple of interesting ones that coincide with today. It was actually to this date in history in 1884 that one of the most noted women's rights activists, Susan B. Anthony, testified before the U.S. House Judiciary Committee, arguing for a constitutional amendment granting women the right to vote just happens to line up that way. This year's theme is Every Woman Counts. And there's a lot that we should be celebrating. And yes, we need to also shine a very bright light on some of the issues that continue to be a problem in this province, in this country, and around the world. Whether that be violence against women or what have you. I don't want to be the one that sets the stage for how we talk about International Women's Day today. So yes, if you want to call and celebrate uh, women in your life who have been mentors to you, and mentors to many, if you want to talk about some of the issues that women are still dealing with, inequity, violence, whatever it is, I'll let you set the stage. You bring the issue up as you see fit here this morning. But you know, there's, uh, this is, it, uh, of course, on the women's front. So remember back when Canadian Tire withdrew their support of Hockey Canada over Hockey Canada's uh, dealing with issues regarding sexual violence. So now Canadian Tire has put forward what they're calling a women's sport initiative. Half of the money they spend on sports will be focused on gender equity. So half for men, half for women. One of the uh, immediate beneficiaries is Canada's women's soccer team. They had a real standoff with Canada soccer about equitable treatment and pay and bonuses and what have you. They've reached a deal in principle that will see Canada participate at the upcoming FIFA World Cup for women. So, you know, the issue regarding equity in sports... I mean, the argument coming from some corners is really quite clear. They say, well, until the eyeballs and the sponsors and the money flows for women like it does for men, even though Canada's women's team have been so much more successful than the men's team over recent years, that their debate, their argument, and Canada's soccer sees the merit in it because we have the defending gold medalist at the Olympics on the women's side. So Canadian Tire has shifted their focus. Strange story here. Dr. Vianne Timmons, the president of of Memorial University, and the crowd at the CBC did an investigation about her reference to having Mi'kmaq heritage. Not that she was a Mi'kmaq or raised Mi'kmaq. She said her father told her about uh, their heritage, but there's some questions about whether or not that's opened any doors for Dr. Timmons. And she's been recognized and referenced to uh, being a champion for indigenous studies and what have you. So she says she has never specifically said that she's Mi'kmaq she had heritage. She's laid claim to being or publicly aligned herself, I guess is the right way to say, with the Brad or Mi'kmaq First Nation, an unrecognized band. Now she's taken that reference out of her professional C V So I mean, I'm not even really sure what to say about this. It seems like a bit of a splitting of hair. Whether it's intentional or unintentional, the and it's complicated and there's a nuanced conversation about indigenous heritage. But Doctor Timmons, the investigation shows that you know, maybe she was making reference to as early or as recently as the 1800s and a genealogical expert in the field said the, the the closest they can find was some attachments back to the 1600s in Nova Scotia. So, anyway, you want to take it on? Let's do it. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is vocm.com When we come back, let's have a great show. Only happens when you call. Don't go away.
2: Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number three. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Harbour Grace port grave She's the minister responsible for women and gender equality. That's Pam Parsons. Minister Parsons, you're on the air.
3: Good morning, Patty, and happy International Women's Day to you and all your listeners.
1: The very same to you. So welcome to the program. You know, this date has been on the go for quite a long time. The theme this year is Every Woman Counts, but we talk about the same issues, and I'm not so sure how much progress we're making. You know, things like reproductive rights, that's a pretty settled issue in this country, not that we can rest on our laurels, talking about gender equality and equity, which is some moves have been made here for pay equity and what have you, but and we'll celebrate some good stuff here in a second, but, you know, we'd probably be remiss to simply just lean on the, those who have, should be celebrated, and we will do that today. But the issue of domestic violence and violence against women, that continues to be a massive problem in this province. Even some of the emergency shelters were at capacity. What is your role in dealing with this issue? Because it's not just about making or building more beds, because that's just treating people after the fact. So what's your role as the minister to try to get a handle on this? and to see a reduction in the numbers.
3: Well absolutely you're right and I mean I am here at the United Nations the Commission for the Status of Women's 67th and the, many of these issues are being discussed such as the ones that you're talking about here and it's obviously it's being discussed at a global table um, but with regards to the in particular to the shelter, to the shelter issue of course my colleague minister John Abbott um, is minister for Children's senior social development, and it's under his mandate actually that oversees shelter. But we have been working together. Um, for example, Jocelyn, rather on the screen, who raised the issue uh, in particular, but the recent issues is about Iris Kirby, for example, um, I was able to bridge the gap there with regards to creating a meeting between him, her, and Minister Abbott, and they're working closely on that. And I mean, and, and Patty, you know, these issues we've made, we've, we, you know, we've made progress. This progress has been made over the years, but as you know, there's always more work that we can do in all these areas with regards to gender-based violence, um, you know, women fleeing. And we know that the pandemic has, has put quite a spotlight on and have brought out these issues even more so, because when we know that women fleeing violence or partners, anyone fleeing violence, um, when we had those lockdowns, I mean, they, could, they couldn't escape that, and especially if they're experiencing domestic violence at home. Um, but down here at the United Nations, in particular, this year's theme, it is the 67th uh, Commission for the Status of Women. It's the first one that they've been able to have in person. Um, the last one was in 2019 because of, the, because of the pandemic. And this year's theme, Patty, is about innovation and technological change and education in the digital age for achieving gender equality and the empowerment of all women and girls. And what we're learning and what we're seeing in jurisdictions across the world is that hate and violence is very alive and well online as it is in, in, in physical spaces in our world.
1: That being said, you know, many, or if not most of the younger generation, they spend a lot of their lives online, whether it be social media or otherwise. So you mentioned, mentioned different ministers who are involved in these conversations. What do you think the role of the Department of Education, and Minister Hackey, should be here? Because it's hard to talk about traumatic and emotional issues to children of certain ages, but until we have more conversation about respect, self-respect, what the issues are regarding domestic violence or violence against women, then by the time... They formed their behaviors, their habits, and their attitudes We maybe didn't have the proper conversations with them in the first place.
3: Absolutely, and, and and I believe sincerely the best you know impact that we can make is getting at the grassroots levels in our education system, in K to twelve, you know, teaching young children from kindergarten through their school years, to the K to twelve system, about healthy relationships, about consent. Um, and we have the, what's called the Roots of Empathy program um, that's implemented now in the educational system, um, teaching just exactly th- those qualities and, and what's important about about consent and about healthy relationships. And I agree hundred percent. And I mean those changes are being made as well as in incorporating Indigenous learnings, because as we know, Patty, I mean, I'm looking back at the, you know, when I came through the system, certainly when you came through the system, much change has happened. I mean, we live in an evolving world, and change is going to happen, on, you know, for every day for the for the rest of time, and, and it's about keeping up with those changes and modifying uh, the criteria so we can do just that. You know, to educate on these issues, um, like and again, down here. It's, it's focusing on, on the digital digital safe spaces, good practices and addressing barriers to, to bridge the gender-digital divide and to promote education in the digital age for achieving gender equality. That's one of the topics for one of the roundtables. And about creating safe places online, because as you know, Patty, I mean, online is, it's, you know, it's a place where predators are, just as they are in physical spaces, and, it's, and we have to keep up and we
1: have to modify as we go. You know, a of some of these acts of violence might not be physical. Some are emotional, some are mental, financial or otherwise, but you speak about the online spaces. We hear from, whether it be RCMP or other agencies, about the spike in sextortion. And many of these people on the receiving end who are being victimized are young women. So when you talk about creating a safe space how does that look because you know technology outpaces the uh, ability for legislators to get ahead of it or on par with it so what do you say to young people out there especially young women about the prevalence of sextortion? because that can lead to a life of being completely horrified we've seen some headlines that ended in tragic circumstances
3: Absolutely I mean you take it anyone who who gets who has their images will use say a young girl in this in this case who she may have sent some Im- intimate images to a boyfriend or to a partner, um, and and those images are shared without their consent. That's life-ruining. And as a matter of fact, in one of the roundtables here at the United Nations, there was actually a representative, a representative from Estonia who talked about that, who talked about a woman who shared her story about how her intimate images were shared, and it was life-ruining for her. Um, and, and in that jurisdiction, they've created a program called Web Constables, where it's a, it's a department within their policing system where they have a, a section – a department dedicated to doing just that to be const- constables on the web. And as you know, Patty, we have implemented legislation um, known as the Revenge Porn or the Intimate Images Act where if if this happens, there's there's criminal consequences for anybody to do that. We've implemented that legislation in Newfoundland and Labrador just uh, just recently. And and again, we, like like I said, it's it's alive and well online violence as it is in our physical spaces. <sighs>
1: We, you know, of course, I don't know how to really handle some of the commentary here, but we can indeed celebrate individual women and women's, whether it be the numbers increasing in the tech sector or whatever the case may be. So how do you suggest we broach? Because sometimes it feels like when we celebrate that we've achieved the end goal. We're there when, of course, we are not there. So how do you suggest we talk about celebrating individual women or women in general as we do indeed have International Women's Day today?
3: You're right, Patty. I mean, work has been done, but there's still much, much more to do, and it's about making those initiatives. It's about making a priority, and for example, our government, we invested $750,000 recently into capital ventures for women and gender diverse people in the tech sector, and that is strictly for women and gender diverse people. And it's going to be those initiatives. It's going to be the funding dedication. It's going to be making space at the leadership tables, as you know, so people, women and gender diverse people have a place at that table where decisions are made that implement and that impact us all in our societies, whether it be Newfoundland and Labrador or jurisdictions across our country or across the world. And uh, being down here too, I'm part of the Canadian delegation at the United Nations here. And it certainly is, um, it's it's great to be part of these conversations, hearing the practices that we're hearing uh, across the country as well. Of the world, I mean, it's it's. Yesterday, I got to sit on the floor, the main floor, actually, with the parliamentary secretary, uh, our federal parliamentary secretary, Jenna Thug, as as we participated in the roundtable the ministerial round table, you know, here on the main floor of the United Nations. And just to hear the practices uh, from Belgium and all the countries that are involved here. And I mean, we all, these problems are certainly not unique to Newfoundland and Labrador. I guess it brings somewhat of cold comfort to know that around the world, women and gender diverse are experiencing the same challenges, but this is the place uh, in the world here at the United Nations, as you know, 193 countries coming together, you know, with the common goal to promote peace and equality for all. And it certainly is an honor to be here. It's, it's, it's very interesting as it, a, uh, as you can imagine, seeing people from all over the world and seeing their, you know, their traditional, even even the clothes that they're wearing, having these conversations, it's very enlightening, and I'm very honored and, and happy to be bringing Newfoundland and Labrador to the table. Also, uh, we have some other people here from the province, such as Odell Pike. She is the chair, actually, for the Aboriginal Women's Network in Newfoundland and Labrador, and she's actually presenting. She's giving a present, presentation this morning because reconciliation is also a, a strong theme here at the United Nations this year and as you know we just recently created Newfoundland and Labrador myself and the premier and that uh, minister for Indigenous affairs reconciliation as well as CISSP we traveled to Labrador to announce the uh, for the first time in our history a reconciliation council that will in, that will include women, Indigenous women, as well as members of government, uh, you know, to, to work on the calls to action for reconciliation, in particular for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls.
1: Uh, last one before I let you go, and I, I'm sure this is probably more from Minister Osborne, but when we talk about Labrador, you know, the prevalence of sexual assault in Labrador is four times what it is on the island, if I remember the numbers correctly. They're still waiting for a sexual assault nurse. Do you happen to have an idea whether or not that's going to happen, and if so, when?
3: Absolutely right. I mean, in Labrador, we know that the statistics are higher than the national average for Indigenous women experiencing sexual violence. Um, my department, we dedicate funding after 225 annually for the past two years to create the, the same. It's called the Sexual Assault Nurse Examiner. Um, and my what I'm told from officials in health and from my colleague is that the, the problem they're facing is recruitment. And we're hearing that across the board with healthcare in Newfoundland, Labrador, and Across the country, uh, but those funds are dedicated. It's my understanding as well that they're in the process now of hiring a coordinator to get this. And I've also been updated that new, new nurses coming in will be given this specific training for sexual assault, and that's very important, as you know. You can imagine a victim coming in and what, what she's going to go through, or what they're going to go through, um, you know, to to first of all bring themselves to report this and to look for help. I mean, because as you as you can imagine, Patty, it's very quite traumatic.
1: I appreciate the time this morning, Minister. Thank you.
3: Thank you, and happy International Women's Day to you and all your listeners. To your wife, Patty. Your wife is a strong woman, an educator. And so, again, it's a time to celebrate, but let's not forget, of course, there's always more work to be done.
1: Safe travels. Thanks for this. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. I so Pam Parson is the Liberal Member for Harbour Grace Portagrave Grave and the Minister Responsible for Women and Gender Equality. Let's take a break. Appreciate the patience of those in the queue. Andrew Pretty is a member of the local service district of Dildo, talked about urgent care services. And Gordon Rendell, he was actually a participant
2: in Kane's Quest. it be interesting to hear from both right after this. Don't- Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to NL at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com.
0: This is Open Line on VOCM.
1: Oops, welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line up Say good morning to one of the members of the local service district of Dildo. That's Andrew Pretty. Good morning, Andrew. You're on the air.
4: Good morning, Patty. How are you?
1: Very well, thanks. How about you?
4: Not too bad, uh, despite uh, the very disappointing announcement yesterday. Uh, I've always, I've long said that Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, we're the best in the world at providing Band-Aid solutions, but the problem is when a Band-Aid is put on by our government, it doesn't stick very well. And this is not sticking very well to to the residents of my community of Dolo, and I'm sure it's not sticking well with the residents of Whitburn. Uh, this this urgent care model they're proposing for three days a week is an insult. It's an insult to us. It it It's a glorified... Um, Nurse with a first aid kit is what it is, uh, type of system, and you know it's fine for Mr. Osborne to say, oh, the you know 80% of the cases covered by the Whitburn uh, Clinic uh, will be met under this model. That's well and good, but how about that 20% that might it might be a life and death situation, and and we don't have this this the ER center here anymore. You know, it's the same thing as me saying, oh, well, I don't have a fire uh, every year on my house. I don't need to pay. Uh, house insurance because it might never happen. That's beside the point. You need it there in case it does happen. And uh, I've had many conversations with um, Mayor Hilda Whalen, and uh, you know we had hoped that that this announcement yesterday uh, would be an uh, in, uh, urgent care model for the interim, and that they would be working towards um, uh, you know re- restoring ER at some point. But the real indictment was that wasn't even mentioned yesterday because they have no intention of doing it. and We know they don't have an, an, an intention of doing it. It's in the health accord. So if Minister Osborne wants to say that this is a good fit for our area, I'll inform Minister Osborne now in the kindest, kindest friendliest way I can that I'm from this area, I know what will work and what won't work. And will urgent care work here? No, 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 no. It will not work.
1: So the thought, Andrew, is that this was the only play that government was willing or wanting to make. There was never going to be a restoration of full emergency room services at the WH No Community Centre, the end. This and was always going to be the best you could hope for. We
4: fully operating ER just over a year ago, and they, t- they took steps, they took steps to, to diminish that. I mean, here, here they went to work and put all our nurses from our clinic out to placentia, and the nurses that were out there are gone now, somewhere else. And the ones that came from New Hook Clinic are stuck there, you know, and they don't have a job anymore with, with this urgent care model. And they had to drive an hour, uh, were, you know, past, past this clinic when they could only have to drive 15 minutes. So that's adding on their workload and making them toler- more tired and, and causing more stress for them. I mean, this is, this is a, not a health crisis. This is a health disaster. I'm I've, I've after hearing stuff that, that would make the hair stand off on the back of your head and makes me question whether I should stay in this province as a young person in my 30s. Uh, I know of someone who went to Carboneer Hospital. They were in the waiting room for 22 hours. There was people standing up in the porch. There was people that had chest pains left the clinic. Or the, or the uh, ER and Carbonier. That's how bad this this crisis is. And uh, you, know, uh, what, the, our side of the bay here in Trinity Bay, we're all having to go to Carbonier. We're all having to go to Placentia. That's putting more strain on them. That's making it worse for them. So uh, you know, Placentia and carbonier and these places also need to speak out. Their 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 places are getting overworked. You know, and and they're still understaffed. Uh, and you know, uh, as I said before, this is not a competition. Everyone deserves, everyone deserves, you know, equal care. But for our uh, staff to go to Placentia to save their ER and us lose ours, that's not fair. And it's fine for our MHA to say she backs us 100%. It's fine to talk the talk, but she's not walking the walk on it. And uh, she she has not yet committed to to backing what. I'm sure 95% of this area wants in our emergency department restored to full operation 24-7.
1: You, you mentioned wait times in emergency departments. And this is not a, you know, once again, this is not a, a one community versus another community. The Same thing's happening right here where I live, in the capital city. Buddy of oh, mine was 13 hours in the emergency room one one night, one night last week, pardon me, 13 hours in serious pain. And those stories are just far too prevalent. So
4: and, Patty, I have a family doctor in paradise. I had to drive an hour. I had an appointment booked. I had to cancel it three times because of weather, because I couldn't drive in there. It wasn't safe to do so. It's a, it a crisis. It's it more than a crisis. It's a disaster. And it's, someone needs to give this a hard look and try to get solutions. And the government band-aid solutions is not going to work. It's only going to cause more confusion and more people are going to die. People are going to die because they're not going to know what to do. Here we are now in this area, we have to triage ourselves to know where to go, what what direction to go, what road to take, and, and if we're going to get there, you know, in
0: time.
1: The one issue for me that I think is probably the overarching theme regarding health care shortages is exactly that. It's the... Inability for people to get a family doctor, maybe that's why some of the wait times at emergency rooms and the overcapacity happens uh, more than it ever has in the past. So when the minister says to move from three days to five to seven, all hinges on recruitment efforts. Isn't that, you know, isn't that the the prime issue here when we talk about whether or not something is a permanent solution or a band-aid because without the human resources we can build clinics, we can build emergency rooms, we can build hospitals but if you can't staff them appropriately we're always going to have these gaps so what do you say to the struggles that this province and every province in the country is having recruitment in an effort to try to have equitable access to health care?
4: We're, listen, we're, we're, we're in the days of computers. Try virtual care, try virtual emergency care and, and it's, you know The triage will depend on, on, um, you know, whether you need an in-person doctor or something. There's all kinds of things they could do if they look at it. But the urgent care model is not the model that's going to work here. I can guarantee you that. There's going to be – I mean, I know of a case, too. Last year, well – and, and, uh, Patty, my biggest regret is we didn't start this fight early enough. We waited too late. We were too patient. And now it's kind of the the ship has sailed. But the ship will soon be called back because we're not going to – we're not going to let this go. Uh, we're, we're determined to, to fight for this ER department. But last year when the clinic was, was shuttered uh, during the nights and only open, you know, during the days, there was a man saved from a heart attack. And the person told me they wouldn't have made it to another facility. So thank God it happened on uh on banker's hours where where they could go to the partial ER department that was up there at the time, you know.
1: Yeah. Uh, Andrew, this is a different topic, but I want to get it in there because when we talked to uh, representatives of local service districts, it was the group that was left out of the working groups at M&L to talk about crafting a blueprint for whatever regionalization might look like. Are you back at the table? Has any of the tune changed, or are you still waiting for answers to important questions as to whether or not you're even willing to entertain a county system or whatever we're going to call it?
4: Well, um, we've... uh Fought the report as much as we can. Uh, it may have changed government's uh, perspective on it. I think it did, but they're still, you know, moving forward w- w- with something. And we took the, uh, you know, the forward-thinking step here in, in Dildo and our neighbouring community, South Dildo, to do a feasibility study to look at becoming incorporated uh, a cor- incorporated municipality. And uh, when we had the study done, uh, it made sense for us, uh, you know, to look at considering this, you know, so that's where we are with it now and we're in the process right now of, of looking at it, you know.
1: Yeah, because it just really does feel like it's coming, when, don't know, whether or not people are going to be uh, in full understanding of the uh, uh, hopeful outcomes and the different structure that we might see in different parts of the province. So it's one thing to tell me it's coming, quite another for me to have a real understanding of how, why, where, and when. Uh, good to have you on the show, Andrew. Appreciate the time.
4: No problem, Patty. Have a good day.
1: You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, Gordon, stay right there. We really want to hear from participants at Kane's Quest because there's a lot of questions out there. Uh, one I think it's Lady, you know, sent me a note pretty much saying that we're all quick to hop on Cain's Quest when there's negative stories to be told. When, in fact, on this program, we had Chris Lacey on the show at least twice before the race ever started to talk about the race, the importance of it, the spotlight that we get internationally shown on Labrador. Another call to, uh, for a call for volunteers. So we covered it before, during, and why wouldn't we and how could not we focus in on what happened yesterday? Pretty devastating stuff. Harrowing incident, people swimming ashore in the middle of the night. Gordon Randall, stay right there.
2: Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM.
0: This is Open Line on VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Gordon Rendell. You're on the air.
0: Hey, Patty. How are you?
1: I'm doing okay this morning. How about you?
5: Uh, Pretty tired and beat up, sir. No doubt Uh, you are.
1: Uh, Gordon, he's yeah, pretty,
5: pretty tired to beat up, but happy to be dry and uh, dry and warm again.
1: Well, I'm glad to hear that. Is this your first time participating in Kane's Quest?
5: Yes, sir. My uh, my race partner and I have been on support teams before, but this is our first race. Yes.
1: So even before the race began, there were some concerns about the low pressure system hanging over the region, yes. and you know the lack of snow in some parts and some pretty shaky ice conditions. Were you ever in doubt that the race should have even started?
5: No, I wasn't in doubt. Um, Daniel and I you know, did some, uh, like a lot of scouting like other teams have over the last, you know, last year or so, and, and, and leading up to the race, like way out in the countries and stuff like that, there was lots of snow. Um, and the conditions were, were good, but when I seen the forecast uh, farther down the road, I was uh, you know, very concerned. I was like, geez, I just, but I was hopeful that it wouldn't be that bad, you know, but, but it was like uh, i mean the way the weather turned was very dramatic and it, and you can see what happened so
1: and so we'll take that same question and we'll bring it to yesterday when the decision was made to restart the race i yes. immediately heard from people right across the uh, labrador about oh my god this is not going to end well they were sharing pictures with me with you know barren, uh, barren terrain and open water so when that yes. decision resumed yesterday you must have felt a bit different than you did prior to the race beginning on day 1 yeah, I didn't,
5: I really didn't know what to expect uh, like, you know, you get kind of, kind of concerned, of course. And, uh, like when we were watching, watching like a handful of racers leave just before us, uh, when we left Cartwright, it was, you know, it looked pretty, pretty, uh, pretty bad. And, uh, but you, you know, you, you go and you, uh, you know, you're going to come across what you're going to come across and do what you can. But, uh, Farther we went, and the more we came across, it was pretty. Uh, it was it was pretty dramatic. I guess is the word to use. And uh, but there were I think thirteen of us that thirteen of us that made it to Port Hope. And um, but it was also pretty scary for a couple of the teams that got swamped. I mean, we all got in trouble. But I think as time got a little later, that the 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 conditions started getting worse. And uh, you know, poor Team Finland there, they lost a machine and. Uh, I think team three got swamped and had to get helped. And there was other teams that had to get helped out, you know, so it was pretty, and there was one team too, as well, that, I mean, there was polar bear, uh, polar bear track. There was one team that came around a corner and actually came right face to face with a polar bear. And hopefully, I mean, (laughs) thankfully it wasn't team Finland that had to swim for a while, (laughs) swim for a while, but, uh, yeah, the the conditions, Paddy, got pretty dramatic. Yeah, that's for sure.
1: So, just describe what you saw. For instance, I don't know exactly how it works and how precise the traveling of the snowmobiles are inside of one checkpoint to another. But so, did yeah. you see or encounter this open water? Describe the snow conditions oh, and what you experienced yeah. on your way to Port yeah. Hope Simpson.
5: There was, I, I would say, the vast majority of what we traveled over was was water, and like like with the ice ice condition. I mean, the ice still would be thick for the uh, for the most part, but you get a lot of water coming through and a lot of water now coming on top. So you get a lot of slush, uh, you know, the water could be anywhere from a foot deep to three feet deep. So you're, you know, you're doing your best to get over that and travel, travel over it, hopefully not traveling through it, which, which you have to at times. And we came across a couple of teams that, uh, that, that we helped. And that was one of the things Daniel, and I, Daniel and I said that we would be a team that would be helpful, you know? And, um, but it was it was probably as dramatic as I've ever seen. Um, a lot of slush, a lot of water. Like even traveling over land, like you said, the the snow took a beating and a lot of rocks and ground and barren land. And uh, even through some of the trails, we had to get through. The soft the snow was so so soft. You know, it made it very. Very, very difficult to get through.
1: So, as a competitor, what do you think needs to happen now? You know, re- re- reviewing protocols for decision making regarding safety, or whatever the case may be. Because, you know, there's going to be a lot of folks at the in the organizing world that come under fire here, and I think rightfully so. So, what do you think, or suggest should happen next?
6: Um,
5: well, it's difficult, Patty. It's hard to you know, it's hard to scrap with the uh, with Mother Nature. It's um, the I think well uh well, I can tell you what happened when we were in port hope simpson um I, I think they did a pretty good job like the the committee in kane's quest uh had us on a on a, on a conference call, and it was just the racers in in one room and so we listened to what they had to say and what they would consider for options then as racers, you know we are more more in touch, I guess, and, and, and more hands-on with, you know, the actual traveling and the actual racing. So what we did is we asked them, asked them if we could call them back. So we, we sat around as racers and it went really well. We had a good, uh, good frank discussion and considered the options and considered, you know, the safety and, and the conditions and what we'd like to do and where we were. And so we, uh, we called them back and we discussed our, our concerns and considerations and they listened to us and, and they also asked to call us back. So they called us back and said, you know, we would decide to cancel and restart the race at a, you know, at a different time, probably from the very beginning. And, uh, but that's really how it went. So I think that worked well. Um, I I think what you were asking me is if, if it should have actually started from Cartwright and that is, I think that was, or sorry, actually, yes, from Kurt, right? That was probably a tough decision for them. And uh, I don't know. I'm probably on the fence 50-50 with that. But it's, uh, it's Mother Nature,
7: Patty. She's a tough one, man.
1: And she's unpredictable. Uh, that much we yeah. do know. And I don't think there's any, I'm certainly not suggesting there's any malice or, you know, a, uh, being oblivious to safety in any of these decisions because I don't, I'm glad it was my decision to make. But I'm glad you're warm and dry in here to uh, get, uh, share your experience with us. Anything else you want to say this morning, Gordon?
5: Um, you know, it's really great for the race itself. You know, when people are cheering for you and people are sending you messages, it's it's, it's fantastic. Like, you can't do this race without your support teams. Um it's, uh, she's a tough race, Patty, and, but we're glad we did it. We're glad we got as far as we did. It was a, it was a challenge which we knew it would be. And um, for Daniel and I, uh, my race partner Daniel is just fantastic. He's a, he's a tough dude, man, and he, uh, you know he, he got us there. And uh, for Daniel and I, I'll just add one thing. like our one of our big uh, motivations in doing this race was, uh, was cancer. Uh, our, our moms both died of cancer and we've all, I mean, I'm sure with with yourself, we've all witnessed people die of cancer and we kept talking about, you know, the people we've witnessed and suffered and died, And that just helped us keep going and trying to be as tough as we could, you know?
1: Good on you, Gordon. And I appreciate your time okay. this morning. Okay, Patty. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, sir. Bye-bye. Gordon Rendell was a participant in Kane's Quest. Uh, one more before the news. It's called line number three. Don, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Excellent, sir. How are you doing? I'm good. i just give you a call telling you about my experience with the 811 service, Patty. Sounds good. Uh second uh, time I used it was Saturday past, and uh, everything went very smoothly. And when I phoned,
8: I got through right all the way. And when the folks said they were going to phone back, they phoned
6: back. They were courteous. No problem at all, Patty. Everything went well.
1: Well, that's a good thing. You know, 811 is an important service. The unfortunate reality is some of the spotlight on that service is about how much it costs the government and, you know, how that contract was arrived at. But, yes, if eight one one can be that piece of guidance or give you some comfort before you get too worried or stressed out about whether or not you should go immediately to an emergency room or what you need next, but if it worked for you, that's the good news.
4: You know, all I
8: had to do was uh, just get a, a new prescription this the nurse practitioner was efficient when very smoothly got it.
1: Good news. Really glad to hear it. And so you're Thank doing you well, know, Don?
8: Buddy. Everything was good.
1: Good man. Okay. Have a great day. Appreciate your time. Bye now. Take care. Bye bye. Uh, very quickly here, I told this lady I would put this out there for her. You know, when, you know, for pets, they're a big part of the family for many families. They just really are. So this is a story about a young male Yorkie missing from Kenmount Terrace. Uh, around Turnover Motors name is Charlie the owner is devastated so it's a sweet looking little dog uh, lost somewhere in and around Kenmount Terrace Mount Road last night around 2 a.m. so keep your eyes peeled for this sweet little Yorkie if you see that dog and you think it might be the missing male uh, they haven't provided. Our uh, uh, name is Charlie. Uh, answers to Charlie, maybe. If you see Charlie, please do let us know, so we can let the owners know as well. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Alan's there to talk about something that he's uh, experiencing out in Bay Roberts. Don't go away.
2: Weekday mornings from five thirty to nine, jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your V O C M Morning Show.
0: This is Open Line on VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. And this introduction offered with true sinceri- uh, sincerity and a genuine reflection of the uh, work that Rob Strong has done in the oil and gas industry here in this province. Oil and gas veteran Rob Strong on two. Rob, you're on the air. Good morning, Rob. Hi, good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent, sir. Welcome back to the show. And first off, apologize that no one replied to your email. I didn't know it was there. So I would not, have, for sure.
8: Not to worry. Dave, Dave is entitled to some holidays, obviously. He works his ass off doing trying to keep you on the straight and narrow, so I understand he's on a month's vacation. And I hope he's listening in, and I wish him uh, all the enjoyment. I understand he's in Las Vegas, so I do hope he makes some money.
1: Absolutely right. Let's talk ExxonMobil, of course. They're the biggest oil company in the production world here, even though I think it's uh, Suncor has an equity piece in all four producing fields. But talk about what they're planning in the uh, offshore right now. There's some big news about uh, increasing the tap.
8: The uh, Exxon story that I'm following, Patty, is the Hebron story, and that is the release by the... Uh, CNLOPB the other day indicating that they're going to uh, to produce more oil from a different reservoir and adding, I think, about 80, 90 million barrels of oil. And, of course, of course, that's typical, as we know. I mean, I'm old enough, and perhaps you are, too, to remember when Hibernia was announced. They talked about, I think it was 560 million barrels recoverable. And as everybody knows, just last year, I think, we celebrated the idea of over a billion barrels and now they're projecting 2 billion barrels. So the news from Exxon on, he- on Hebron is very encouraging, and I think it's typical of all the fields offshore Newfoundland. But what I really wanted to talk to about this morning are are, are, are really not not Exxon, but both Equinor and, uh, and Suncor. Uh, as you and your listeners know, there's been a lot of debate or a lot of discussion in the media recently about Equinor's plans for the Beta Nord field, and just recently the new uh, country manager for Equinor, uh, Tora Lofeth, if my my Norwegian is good, has made some statements with respect to the amount of topside work we might or we might not expect in Newfoundland. And as you know, Trades NL have taken the position that uh, we should do as much as we can for the topside's we're in Ecuador, seem to be indicating that the work for the subsea is going to be massive in itself and keep our fabrication community busy. Well, you know, we're talking, I think we're talking about 5,000 tons of steel, which is not a lot of work. A lot of that steel would be used in, 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 in putting together what we call the piles, the subsea structures that sit on the ocean floor have to be driven into the ocean floor, piled in. And that's that's basically just rolling steel. So, what I'm what I'm curious about is is two things. One is how many. What are we talking about in the way of jobs, uh, direct jobs and indirect jobs? And secondly, why can't we do some of the topside work here in Newfoundland? We've got a track record here, Patty. We've we we did pretty well. 100% of the topsides for White Rose we did about 70% of the topsides for Terranova so why can't we do topside work related to Equinor i don't know if you can answer that question but i certainly pose it and i you know i pose it to energy nl i mean this is an organization that's been around for all oh, 45 years or so i know i've been a member for 40 years and i have not heard a peep out of Epino, out of energy nl with respect to the Question of how much topside work we can do in Newfoundland. So, extremely disappointed in my friends at, at at Energy NL. I can't believe it that the 450 members. I mean, I mean, and Patty, we're not just talking about direct jobs. Every direct job, depending upon which multiplier effect you use creates up to four or five. And I'm thinking about sort of the what I call the peripheral companies, the hotels, the taxis, the restaurants, the safety supply companies, the NDT companies. So if we get jobs related to top sides, we get a bigger, a big bang for all these peripheral members of Energy NL. So, wow, don't think I got an opinion on that?
1: Yeah, no, Paul, don't pull any punches. No. So, you know, <laughs> Trades NL, the build right here, is an important campaign. It's the vague comments coming from Equinor that I give a reason for pause, you know, talking about you know, maybe doubling the subsea work, and of course the footprint of that eventual field, which I do think is going to happen, is going to be about the size of the Avalon Peninsula. They also make reference to more financial benefit to the province, none of which has any detail attached to it, so I don't know, and I certainly cannot answer the question as to why more topsides work cannot be done here. You also wonder what kind of cards the province holds. And there's some complexities inside that Bayonet-Nord decision that are unlike other fields that have been approved and are in production, notably that are issue. There's hundreds of millions of dollars that are yet to be determined who's going to pay those monies to the UN, whether it be the Feds, the province, Equinor, we just don't know, but I bet you that's a big hurdle in that boardroom.
8: I'm sure it is, but I mean, let's not forget that we're talking about probably a billion barrel field. The the results from the CNLOPB recently on the reanalysis of some of the wells, uh, I added up the other day, and there's 980 million barrels of oil. And it's light, sweet, low sulfur, if there's such a thing as light, sweet crude. But right. it's very favorable crude. And in documentation I've seen, it rates very high up on Ecuador's list of pop projects. There was one other project called, ironically, Bacalou in Brazil. And then second one was Beta Nord, and they talked in those days, and I think based upon 300 million barrels, they talked about $35 a barrel, CapEx and OPEX, capital and operating. So if you can produce it for $35 a barrel at 300 million barrels, what can you produce it at 1 billion barrels?
1: And in their quiet moments, and this happens all the time, so whether it be Hibernia with the maybe 560 million barrels headed towards 2 billion now, uh, out at Baylor the North, they're talking about the potential for 1 billion barrels of recoverable oil, and that's before they've even set up shop out there formally, so sure that is. 1 billion can be another 2 billion. Same with Hebron, they are only 200 plus million barrels of production so far in, now estimating uh, almost a billion. You know they're they're going to eclipse that as well. I'm not sure why they do it the way they do it. Maybe it's legitimately just finding out when they find out. But the numbers and the barrels and the break even benchmark of 35 bucks gives us every reason to believe they're going to give it the business sanction. Whether or not they can strike a deal that works for both sides between the province and Equinor, I suppose, is what's still in flux. You mentioned Nova Rob. Now, I got a text message this morning with a bit of information regarding Nova and some rumbles on the street. And I don't know if you can put your oil and gas air to the ground and see what's going on, but apparently... The Terra Nova has been the FPSO, of course, back from Spain, but now they've found out there's still some extensive work that continues to need to be done, and so maybe some of that work will go to Marystown or Bull Arm here. But have you heard anything about some of the work that remains to be done on that FPSO? Because it really felt like it was coming back for inspection before it went back out.
8: Not really, but you are <laughs> you must have big ears, Patty, because you'll hear a lot of things on the ground, but you're entirely correct. I'm hearing the same story that... Uh, uh, it's got to come to come to shore somewhere, and obviously the two spots it could be either Bull Arm or it could be Marystown. There apparently is a lot of follow-up work. I think the uh, the Suncor put out a, a, uh, some sort of a statement, but a vague statement saying we you know follow-up work and so on. And we do know that obviously it has to be certified. Uh, you know, they use a classification society, and I think it's either DNV, uh, ABS, Lloyds, one of those, who have to certify the platform as being fit for purpose. And I'm assuming some of the, uh, from what I'm hearing anyway, some of the piping work done in Spain uh, has to be redone. And here you and I, as, as, as taxpayers in this province, gave Suncor... $200 million of taxpayers' money out of that money that the Feds gave us, and then uh, and then provided Suncor with $300 million of royalty relief. So you and I, indirectly or directly, have given Suncor $500 million, and still the job is not complete. Perhaps, you know, perhaps we should have done some of this work in Newfoundland before it went over to Spain. Obviously, it had to go to Spain to come out of the water. We haven't, don't have a dry dock big enough. But perhaps some of that topside work could have been done and done properly uh, here in Newfoundland. And, you know, Patty, maybe there's a message here for sanovas The C-Rose FPSO is destined to go or has or talked about going to a foreign yard next year for some sort of a... a Asset—they call it L A L A L E. Asset life extension, and maybe you know, maybe we should be thinking about, or they should be thinking about doing some of that work here in Newfoundland. Because if what if if what we hear went on in Spain, if 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 the end result is requiring all this additional work, maybe we should do it here right off the top.
1: Sounds about right. Uh, last one, Rob, and I think I misspoke last time we uh, chatted about. Saudi Arabian presence here when it's at the Qatari presence here, and they're so bullish on gas. Any more developments on that front that you've heard? Because there's some plans in place to land a gas pipeline here, but that's decades down the line, and not coming from a big formal big oil and gas producer like some of the companies that are already in play. Hearing any rumbles on gas?
8: Yes, a, a little bit, I, and I noticed that uh, then the conservative leader who was in Newfoundland recently talked about his his full support for Newfoundland LNG, and that's the proposal to bring the gas ashore, bring it into Grassy Point on the bottom, just below Arnold's Cove, uh, put it through what we call a fling, which is a floating LNG facility, and then export the LNG. But what's interesting about the the Equinor Catter uh, acreage is that there are looking for a rig for next year in very deep water and there's you know just a few rigs there so this this year by the way we're going to see we're going to see BP uh, drilling uh, in the Orphan Basin on a very fair pro- prospect called Ephesus, used to be called Cape Frios, and they're very bullish. At least Nelcor, Jim Keating, has been very bullish on that potential. And secondly, the uh, Exxon are going to have a rig in the jean d'Arc Basin this summer. The Hercules is coming back. And then thirdly, the Exxon are going to be drilling next year. So, you know, we have we have a limited... We have a limited window here for oil and gas. Twenty, thirty, maximum forty years. After that, renewables are going to be taken off. Uh, wind, in particular, solar, uh, hydrogen, ammonia. But right now, we have a limited window for twenty, thirty years. And my my feeling is, let's do it, and let's do it now. For the, let's do it properly environmentally properly but let's do it for the benefit of newfoundland and not just the, not just the wellers and the pipe fitters but also the the, the the other small businesses the hotel operators the taxi drivers and so on because uh, one job one one main job may may spur another two or three jobs and guess what we do need jobs in this province.
1: That we do. Carp Diem. You know, uh, I, I'm trying to find out more about some prospect or potential to electrify the province's offshore installations. Having a hard time getting a bit of real detail info there. But Rob, I always appreciate your time and your perspective. Thanks for this.
8: On that, Patty, before I go, sure. I'll send you along something on that because there's a couple of papers that have been presentations that have been done about electrifying, for instance, sticking. Sticking maybe a wind farm in the middle of the Jean d'Arc Basin and providing electricity to Hibernia, Terranova, White Rose, and Hebron. So I'll send that along to you.
1: Appreciate that. I look forward to it.
8: Okay, take care. Nice to talk to you.
1: You too, Rob. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. Uh, Alan, appreciate the patience. We're going to Bay Roberts to talk to Alan, and then Lois is up the Southern Shore to talk about the ambulance service that has seemingly gone by the wayside in her community or her region. Don't go away.
2: Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com.
0: This is Open Line on VOCM.
2: Welcome back to
1: the show. Let's go. Line number one, Alan, you're on the air.
0: Hi, Patty. How
6: are you?
1: Doing okay. How are you doing?
6: Uh, I'm a bit frustrated right now about the situation that uh, that I'm in here with um, um, our town, actually, over uh, a lift station that's situated right across from our house. We've been having uh, a lot of issues over the years, um, between probably seven and eight years now of um, occasionally having... Um, Water and sewer back up in our in our
1: basement being caused by what
6: um the lift station malfunctioning okay and uh the pumps just uh shut down for whatever reason, and uh we're not aware of it because um there's there's a red light actually on the lift station that uh is supposed to flash when there's issues with the station but uh the red light is not hasn't been working for some years now, and we've spoke to the council and different members about it and it's supposed to be replaced never gets replaced and the lift station shuts down and we get the we get the water now it's not only it's not only us there's probably five or six other families in the area that uh that have the same issue and um We've spoke to the council. Um, I actually submitted a letter back in June of uh, 2021, and um, I've yet to get a reply for it. So uh, last week, or about two weeks ago actually, um, we had uh, another big mess. Um, The toilets overflowed, our bathtub uh, had water in it. Uh, We had a really big mess here, and uh, I resubmitted another letter to uh, the town again, and um, I've been told that it's going to be spoken to in their next meeting, which is next week. But um, I don't know. I'm just, just not hopeful because this has gone on now for so long, and I've been told over and over and over, yes, there is a problem there, and we have to try to fix it, but we have no results. Just every time we turn around, we gotta, we got a mess to clean up.
1: So when, when you have a mess to clean up, who's on the hook? Who's been liable? Does the town take care of it, or do you have to go to your insurance or out-of-pocket? What happens?
6: Well, we haven't done anything about it. We've just cleaned up the mess ourselves. now. With regards to the damage, like right now is just to the point where our uh, baseboards in our basement are starting to get mouldy. The bottom of one of our doors have swelled up and the bottom have actually had to be taken out of the door in order to close it. Uh, The gyprock is wet and dried, of course, and... I don't know. I just don't know what to do anymore. I'm, I'm just sick of going to them about the issue and uh, never being replaced, never being repaired.
1: Do you have any idea like what kind of what's involved in the repairs or the price tag associated with it? Because you would think it's in everybody's best interest that if there's something that's well understood and it's not like you're trying to reinvent the wheel here, repairing a lift station should be fairly fundamental. Do you know why it's not being done or is it a cost issue or what is it?
6: Well, I feel that the lift station itself is not big enough for the area, and the full station needs to be replaced, basically.
1: It sounds uh, pretty much like that. So, I mean, I could do a little chase and see if there's any update we can get from the town itself. Uh, what else would you like to tell us this morning, Alan, before we say goodbye?
6: Well, you know, I just uh, I just feel that, that the town is, is not doing their part, and... Um, Like We got a lot of other internal stress here. Like um, uh, my daughter actually um, a year and a half ago was diagnosed with leukemia and she lives here in the house. And this is adding to the reason why we want this fixed because we're going to start getting mold in our house and there's already mold there actually and it's just not a healthy environment for us or her to to be living in, you know what I mean? Absolutely. And the, the town is well aware of the situation that my family is in, and I feel that they should be acting a lot sooner than what they've been acting and um, getting something done here.
1: We'll and follow up with the – I'm sorry, go ahead.
6: It has, been, it has been suggested to me to um, approach my uh, insurance about uh, the repairs, but I don't feel that I should have to put a claim in on my insurance and have my premiums raised when the issue is not
1: mine. And you're not even sure if you actually have coverage for this, so that's also something that I suppose is part of the equation. We will indeed follow up with the town, see if we can get any information as to whether something is going to be done, and if so, when. How's that?
6: It sounds good.
1: I appreciate the time this morning. I wish it was a different set of circumstances for you. For sure. Stay in touch, Alan.
6: Thanks for hearing me, out.
1: My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Boy, boy. Let's go. Line number three. Lois, you're on the air.
9: Hi, Paddy. Good morning. Good morning to you. Um, First-time caller, so I'm a bit nervous, so you'll bear with me, please.
1: You just take your time. Um, Go right ahead.
9: I'm calling about the ambulance service or lack of that we have here on the shore. Yep. I know that you've been talking to a few people about it and, and it's it's a top priority for you. Um, but I just wanted to give you some background because like, like all of us on your, uh, our MHA, Loyola Driscoll, was on your shore yesterday and he was saying that, um, you know, we have no ambulance here. But I wanted to go a little bit further and say, even when we do have an ambulance here, we don't have an ambulance here. <laughs> like the ambulance is in Cape Royal, full of snow, have been since December 26th but before that when Mr. Feuer took over the the contract um, the ambulance was in Vermeus. Then he moved it to Reno's then he moved it to Ferryland which is centralized in between um, Bricka South and Caffey Hayden, and then he moved it to Cape Royal. Cape Royal is the furthest point from our Uh, It's the closest point to St. John's in our district. They took the second ambulance out of Trapassi and put it down to Cape Royal. And now we have nobody. Now we have nobody at all. And if we have to call an ambulance and it has to come from Holyrood to come here to my house in Renews, if they have to go to St. John's because Whittles Bay Line is not always open, it's 132
3: kilometres.
1: It's a long stretch. What's also confusing to me a little bit on this one, Lois, it's all bad enough to know that, you know, right there close by where many people live, there's the ambulance in the driveway, covered with snow, no one there to operate it. But people were just maybe caught off guard. So no announcement formally coming from the health authority or the department to say, we have an interruption in ambulance service, so anticipate it being this amount of response time. So that consequently, if it was in my home and something happened where I needed to call an ambulance, if I knew that I would maybe have to wait an hour and a half as opposed to hop in the car, maybe meet the ambulance halfway or make my way all the way to the Health Sciences Centre or St. Clair's or whatever to get the treatment, I would have done that. So I'm a little bit unsure as to why the residents could have been filled in here because this problem starts uh, apparently back on Boxing Day.
9: Yes. Well, this problem started a long while ago. My mom was dead four years and, and we've been having problems when I was using the ambulance for her. So it's a long, long while. It's going on since Mr. Fuhrer took over the, the contract up here. We've had people that don't know how to get to the hospitals driving the ambulances. We've had people that uh, the ambulance drives around. i watched an ambulance one day at the bottom of my driveway for 20 minutes looking for somebody. And when I went down and I said, can I help you? They said, no, can't tell you. Now I'm sure they could give me the address that they were looking for. So like the ambulances don't have any GPS in it. they're trying to use their telephones to find people, like to find on the GPS, which is not a great system anyway up there. Uh, there's just really major concerns overall with the whole ambulance system.
1: Absolutely, because it's not up just up the shore. or There's many pockets of the province that have seen an adjustment to their ambulance services and consequently the amount of time they have to wait and then add into it. Even if you have a community that's serviced by one ambulance uh, company or another, the fact that they've uh, been forced to drive further afield just to get to the closest emergency room, and then the amount of time it might take to offload a patient. You know, I know there's stories coming from the southwest coast, where if an ambulance comes, is called, and they pick up a patient, it could be six hours before they get back to the community for the next call. So these problems are right across the board in many, many parts of the province.
9: Oh, definitely. But it seems like that. It seems like the Southern Shore Park forgotten. And I'm not saying that Mr. O'Driscoll is not doing what he can. It's just he needs help. So we created a Facebook page called The Concerned Citizens of the Southern Shore Regarding Ambulance Services. I've invited you to join. Um, hopefully you can. Um, it, it's, there's horror stories that are showing up there. And people up here are getting angry. I'm very, very upset over the fact that nothing is happening. We were we were told today that uh, it looks like that the Trapassi is losing their ambulance uh, service in uh, in July. There's no there's no backup plan. There's no there's no letting us know what's happening. If they lose their ambulance, that's the only ambulance right now that's from La Manche to Saint-Chaix.
1: Yeah, yeah, and there's lots of confusion there, too, because Bob Fuhr told Linda Swain that his ambulance would remain at Trapasio until there's an alternative found. Then we were told that, no, it's being pulled out in six months. I guess that's now probably five months. And we still don't know who's going to backfill it, whether it be another private offering or whether it's going to be Eastern Health. We just don't know. So it's all those unknowns adding up with the reality that's actually happening on the ground where frustration and worry are growing every day.
9: Yeah yeah and people are getting so and there's going to be something major happen up here which which already have, but you can't prove it but there's there's going to be something major happen up here it's It's too long when you have to wait up to two and a half hours for an ambulance and you're having a heart attack,
1: yeah. And you know, someone made the use the example of someone who's uh, suffering from a stroke, and the time required to get one of those so-called clotbusters, even though I know that's not the proper medical terminology. You know, s- to to maybe reverse the impact. So there's a lot to this, and I'm glad you called this morning, Lois. It's about time we understand what the long-term plan is, because. This conversation has been going on for years that I've been here. We've been talking about whether or not there's going to be just one public offering, not a bunch of different private services like Ryan's, who's, the, who Ryan's, who's a subsidiary of Fuers, or other private offerings around the province, because we've reached what I would think, well, we've probably passed the breaking point, but as a first-time caller, I really appreciate your time. I'll give you the final word. Go right ahead.
9: Okay, uh, Patty, thanks. I'm hoping that people are going to call in and let you know some of the horror stories that we're seeing on the Facebook page. Um, we'll we'll keep at it. Like I know that our, our member has our back, and he's trying his best, but maybe he needs just an, an extra helping hand along the way. Thank you so much for your time.
1: I'm glad you called. Thank you, Lois. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. Don't go away.
2: Got plans for Midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM.
0: This is Open Line on VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number two. Blair, Robert, you're on the air.
7: Good morning, Patty.
1: Morning to you. So, uh, once again, we reached out to some of the participants in the Canes Quest endurance race just to pick their brain on about what they think about what's happened here. So, obviously, I would suggest the vast majority of participants uh, agree with the decision to cancel.
7: Yeah, definitely.
1: So, uh, a sa- similar question to what I ask Gordon. Uh, first off, is this your first time participating?
7: No, it was my third race, actually.
1: Compare the conditions this year to what you experienced in years past.
7: Uh, no comparison, really. Uh, we've been fortunate. I raced in 2018, a lot of flat late, but overall, very good snow conditions, uh, mild temperatures, light drizzle, but nothing uh, out of the way. And on uh, in 2020, uh, we had pretty much blue skies and sunny, uh, cold, maybe down to minus 30 to minus 15 maybe, but uh, very fair conditions. Uh, this time... We had the first day was, you know, real, real good into Goose Bay. Uh, out to Regolette the next morning uh, was very flat light, uh, kind of hard to see through the meadows. A lot of heavy snow through the Mealy mountains, and then um, halfway through the conditions started to deteriorate really fast. Um, a lot of slush and slob and water and heavy rains, and uh, into Port Hope. Then the following morning, after we got held up in Cartwright overnight, um, you could see that or I could see, I guess we were one of the uh, top five teams leaving Cartwright, but you, you knew, I guess, the guys that were coming behind you were going to have it significantly worse.
1: So talk us through what you were thinking when the decision to resume the race happened yesterday.
7: Uh, yesterday, we were just kind of, uh, all the teams were very logical, very level-headed. We kind of got all the teams, all the racers, in, in one room together, and uh, we kind of thought about, about everyone, basically. Uh, the other teams that were that were behind and the teams that were in, uh, in Port Hope at the time and I guess uh, safety was a, was a, a major concern and uh, we had um, I guess from from uh, the race standpoint uh, we had a, an option to go to Northwest River and go from Northwest River back to Labrador City but we didn't feel that it was any way to make the race fair. Uh, the teams that were three or four hours behind basically wouldn't have any time to catch up. So, so the leading teams would have been able to coast their way to to Labrador City, and the guys that were three or four hours wouldn't have enough time to make uh, to make up any any time to win that race. So we were kind of looking at it from that standpoint. And then, in the event that the weather turned cold uh, and and teams were wet and had any trouble, I guess, with their snowmobiles or stuck or anything like that, uh, then the chopper wouldn't have any way to uh, access the people and, you know,
1: could turn for a very uh, bad situation. What do you think this does to the status of the race and people's willingness to participate? If they think that maybe the decision was so fatally flawed that the issue like the uh, the Finnish guy having to swim to shore was inevitable?
7: Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to be in, in a... a uh, committee and had to make that decision, but ultimately it was the racers' decision. Uh, I feel that the committee did a great job of putting it on the racers and okay. allowing those teams uh, to to make that decision amongst amongst themselves. I mean, it is a world-class race, and, and they have like an audience, I guess, from, from all over the world, um, but they did, I guess, leave it up to the racers to make the ultimate decision. Um, and I do think that the previous years, you kind of get two good years back-to-back. Back. Uh, teams start to think, and outside people uh, seem to think it's you know a fast ride around Labrador. But uh, we've certainly seen this time the conditions that you can handle. Um, and I guess you have to know your own limits and, and when it's time to, uh, to turn to your survival and, and forget the race. Um, I definitely think people will take a, a second look and, uh, at what, what the conditions they can come into. Um, I guess during the race, you know, you don't know what Mother Nature is going to throw at you. And the other thing with the uh, how about the finish guy having to, to swim the shore, I think it should be known, I guess, uh, you know, obviously very unfortunate for him, uh, but I guess to the locals, that is known to be uh, a bad section and open for most of the winter. Uh, so I guess uh, it was nothing new or nothing strange to, to the local guys. Uh, you know that that was not froze over. I mean, we are, uh, you know, come to open water in a lot of more sections of, of Labrador, and you just I guess know to avoid. Uh, but you know, given the conditions with the water and not being able to follow other guys' tracks, and in the dark and everything else, I mean, it don't. You know, uh, when you're looking at a line in your GPS, you don't be long, a line going hundred or two hundred yards off course.
1: Have what kind of stories are you hearing about the amount of time and the uh, maybe a stoking of fear for some of the racers that waited hours to be rescued? And I know the Finnish team say that uh, their incident happened in the dark. It was light by the time they saw the snowmobiles coming to rescue them. What kind of stories are you hearing?
7: Yeah, well, I mean, we were in port au We kind of hear all all the mixed stories. But uh, I guess uh, what the public don't don't realize are the conditions. I mean, uh, you know, you, you kind of got to think about your own safety. Uh, um, the, the helicopters, I guess, weren't able to fly or very unlikely able to fly. And then uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, arranging a group of people to go in the dark and you're pretty much uh, driving your snowmobiles uh, full throttle, I'll say, you know, even to access these, these points, uh, it's, it's not an easy decision to make. Absolutely not.
1: No, of course not. And uh, I'm glad I asked you about the decision-making process because if it really boiled down to the fact that, the racers decided to continue. Hopefully that takes, you know, I, I'm sure Chris Lacey feels like he's under fire here this morning. Okay. And a lot of the folks in the area that weren't even involved just sharing pictures with me about the conditions. And it looked like pretty treacherous conditions for a snowmobile race. All the barren terrain and the open water. And, you know, maybe some of the local knowledge helped people steer clear of some notoriously dangerous spots. But not everyone in the race is a local, you know, including the boys from Finland. Uh, Blair, I'll give you the last yeah. word before we say goodbye this morning.
7: No, uh, definitely. Uh, thanks for calling. Like I said, it was nice to, to you know, because uh, you get going from one uh, one comment to the next and, and whatever. But I, I think they handled it well uh, overall. Like I said, it came down to the racer's decision. Um, and, and yes, yeah, for, for sure, Chris is, is under fire. And the whole committee, I would say, is a big event, a lot of money, a lot of time invested into it. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, safety, I guess, is, is the ultimate uh, role here in some places were impassable or kind of made the route uh you know they, they did provide us with three options and and uh, and we took some time with their as the, as the racers to uh i guess analyze the decision and kind of counteract with uh, with what they came with us and uh, and all the i must say all the 13 teams that were in port hope all all, all agreed
1: well I really appreciate you making time. Like I said to Gordon, I'm glad you're dry and safe and sound to join us this morning. Thanks for this, Blair.
7: Yeah, no worries. Thank you.
1: Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, we thought as opposed to, you know, letting the rumor mill drive it, maybe talk to some participants to exactly what went on, how the decisions were made, stories they're hearing, because they're the ones that are on the ground, or I guess on the ground. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking long-term care. Don't
2: go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome
1: back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Diane, you're on the air.
9: Good morning, Patty. How are
1: you? Very well, thanks. You?
9: Good. Good. Uh, I wanted to talk about uh, that man that was severely beaten in long-term care, uh, and I, I mean his uh, his family must be very very upset. I know if my dad was in there, and I see him like that, I'd be totally upset as everybody else would. Absolutely. But in the meantime, it takes a, you know it takes a lot for you to put somebody in long-term care. Actually, uh, on yourself mentally, right? That you no longer can give them care that they need. And then they go into a home and you see what happens to them. And it's not happens every day, thank goodness. But just to see what happens is appalling to the family. And I've heard on um, the news this morning apparently there was a woman attacked too in the same facility by the same person.
1: I'm not sure if, uh, like, I have an email. I'm not sure the woman did not tell me where her mother was attacked, but it was in long term care on a dementia ward. I'm not sure if it's the same home or not. But the story might not happen every day, but it happens far too frequently. And when the response coming is, well, you know, there's not much we can do about it, that's simply not good enough.
9: Well, I worked in a long-term care home, and no, it doesn't happen very often. But when it does happen, uh, just a couple of angles that you can look at there. Uh, one thing, the, fam- <clears throat> the family doesn't always agree with the staff and or the doctor and what way to treat this person. Uh, the person that i that we dealt with uh didn't know what they were doing and did beat up somebody, but we ended up getting the doctor who reluctantly but we convinced him he had to because he was he was he was a wanderer too um to to medicate him, give him something to keep him calm not not does not come out and the daughter the daughter of the man who was going around hitting people she insisted herself she said no i don't want my dad going around beating up people give him something she don't want to see without doubt but sometimes uh, i mean you can't take that point the other things i mean you can't even take them and put them in the water because it's not fair to him
1: so as someone who has worked in the setting and of course i have not so are you saying that if someone is a wanderer or someone who maybe has had some violent outbursts, th- what's what's the go-to? Because there's going to be disagreements between folks who are the actual staff and maybe the family members. So was the go-to medication? Or what did it take for someone to be in restraints? Not to suggest that that's, that even sounds terrible coming out of my mouth, but explain to us how we arrive at decisions in these settings for medication and or for restraints.
9: Restraints... Um came out of the thing as far well, when I was working uh, they decided to go against restraints and we used to use straps you know, and lockers but they decided to go totally against that because it only made the patient worse Worse because how? He wanted to get up Worse because uh, he couldn't get up and walk and then he was screaming and shouting and language, and it was just an upset to the whole unit
1: Okay, that and makes sense.
9: Feel, I mean, that's torturous for somebody. Can you imagine being strapped down? I can't. No, and, then, and really, when you think about it, this person is not well to begin with. And if you were strapped down because you had to have shock treatment, they used to do that years ago, but they don't do, do that now. But that's what they used to do, but you knew what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And it was only for a minute. But to be, at, be strapped down all day? No. They took the restraints off and said, no. And what they did do was basically sometimes we could manage to put them in a jerry chair uh, with a a table that locked in and give them things to do, different things to do to occupy their time and their mind as a distraction. And then, of course, if they got annoyed with that and upset and wanted to get out, well, then we'd have to give them something to quiet them down. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's the only solution. A lot of people don't agree with it, but I mean, you don't have to, like I said, give them something to put them out cold. You just give them something to relax them and just let them go because it is a wandering unit.
1: Did you work on a dementia ward? Yes. Okay. So what kind of security measures are in place? Is it just a matter of the staff keeping an eye on the residents or are there other protocols in place that we can ensure people are protected from, whether it be themselves or others?
9: Well, we had a, a, a new wandering unit, and thankfully it was made just for dementia. It was, it was made in um, a circle. The desk and stuff was in the middle, and people could wander around and around without hitting, as uh, the old saying goes, a brick wall. And that, that helped because some, some of the patients did not, the residents did not realize uh, that they could turn around. So they could keep walking and walking until they got tired, and then we'd got to the to their bed. But at the nursing station, we had cameras. We had you know, not cameras, um, screens that you could see every part of the unit. So we knew if there was something going down on whatever side, and there was always somebody in to monitor the the screens. And that was a very good. That was a big help.
1: No doubt. Uh, are the patient's rooms locked at night? You know, not strapping them down, but the door's locked so that the, someone can't come in while they're asleep, which I think was the case for that poor gentleman last week? No. Okay.
9: No, we never, we never locked anybody in their room.
1: I suppose that's got an issue with egress just in case there's a fire or something, I suppose, as well.
9: Well, you wouldn't, get, you wouldn't be able to paddy, get around to everybody's room and unlock and the door.
1: Totally understand. Yeah, that's what I meant by, no, you know, no, just no, in case there's an emergency. Things-
9: yeah, there's only two staff on in the nighttime,
1: mm-hmm.
9: And we used to have to take our break on the unit because of shortage of staff, and that was years ago. And we weren't allowed off the floor.
1: How long ago w- were you working on one of these wards?
9: Uh, about 20 years.
1: Okay. Well, 20 years. It s- seems like there's some uh, lingering issues, obviously, and I've got some questions regarding long-term care, of course, for the minister when it comes on after the news. A variety of things inside of long term care safety, and the percentage of residents in this province in, in restraints, and the percentage of residents in this province uh, taking antipsychotic drugs compared to the national average. There's so much to understand inside those numbers. So we'll see if the minister has. I can shed some light on it. I appreciate your time, Diane. Anything else you want no, to talk about?
9: No, it'll be interesting to hear what he's got to say too. Actually, because um, you know we didn't give heavy doses of, of medication. We just gave more like ativan or something like that and see if that'd work or you know usually and sometimes we did have to put a one-to-one what does that mean that means uh, we got a a nurse an extra nursing staff to go with that patient all day okay and they usually knew what to do to guide them and, and deter them and uh, i just tell you this little incident because this happened, and it happened when I was on. We had somebody came in from the BN course, and they were, you know, you orientate the patient to person, time, and place. But if you've got a dementia care patient, you cannot orientate them to person, time, and place because they're confused.
10: Mm-hmm.
9: And I remember this man wanted to, to go and visit his Daughter and um, I went to break, and when I came back, the man was all upset. And uh, I asked, I asked the intern, the you know nurse intern, what was wrong. She said, well, I told him that he was here and that you know he couldn't go. And I said, you don't do that. Not with a person who is really you know, who was in this unit and who's really upset, and they don't know what, even where they are. And uh, she reported me, and of course, then I went straightened out. I got him quiet down. I told him, yes, we go and see his But first, we were going to go and get something to eat. Then he forgot about it <laughs> for a while. And then, of course, you just use different excuses. You would tell them little white lies to keep them calm.
1: It's frustrating, but you know what, Diane? It's also quite sad.
9: It's sad because uh, you don't want to see anybody belong to you like that. And what used to frustrate me was people would come to the unit and they say, oh, this is the worst place they could have sent me to. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, and this is the worst person, one of the worst people I'd want to see. People who don't want to be there because you need to like what you do to be in a place like that. Because you have to have a lot of patience. Somebody who comes with no patience for that is absolutely useless.
1: Yeah, you know I do. There's so much uh, that we need to approach with the minister. Time is always an issue because we can talk about a million issues uh, inside of healthcare. I appreciate your perspective. Thanks for this this morning, Diane.
9: You're very, very welcome.
1: Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, so let's go ahead and take that break for the news. When we come back, still a ton of time to speak with you. Don't go away.
2: Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com.
0: This is Open Line on VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Waterford Valley. He's the Minister of Health and Community Services. That's Tom Osborne. Minister Osborne, you're on the air. Good day. How are you? That's bad, sir. How about you? Good, good. Pleasure to be on your show again. Happy to have you on. Let's start in Whitburn. So, of course, the emergency room at the WH Noah Community Health Center has been closed since June the 27th. Now, for the first time ever, the province is going to have an urgent care clinic. Before we get into exactly what that is, the assertion from residents in the area is that this has always just been the plan. You know, there was never going to be a restoration of emergency room services there, not because you couldn't re- recruit anybody, but because that's the plan. Is it, is it as simple as that that was the plan all along? Um,
11: recruitment, you know, there's no argument, no dispute that recruitment of healthcare professionals is a challenge uh, globally uh, in every province of of Canada. It's a it's a consideration in Newfoundland and Labrador. So has it been difficult to recruit uh, staff to uh, an emergency department in Whitburn? Uh, It absolutely has. There is no question uh, that uh, that has been difficult. It's easier to recruit for an urgent care than it is for emergency. There are different scopes of practice. um, And not every health professional is prepared to uh, work in an emergency department uh, where the same health professional would be, uh, have the scope of practice and be prepared to work in an urgent care center. So, what we have uh, promised in the Whitburn area is certainly considering the emergency department has been closed for eight months and for several months prior to that had been on diversion regularly, um, putting an urgent care center out there uh, where we know that uh, the, the levels of acuity are range from level one, which is the most. Uh, severe or most acute, they would be life-threatening to level five. Uh, More than 80% of what was serviced in the emergency department in Whitburn prior to diversion would have been level four and five. When you include level three, which an urgent care center can deal with uh, many level threes, uh, perhaps not all, but many of them, you're well over 90%. So an urgent care centre can deal with, you know, certainly between 80 and 90% of whatever was dealt with at the emergency department previously. Um, It will be open uh, starting next Monday, three days a week uh, from 8 to 4. That is what Eastern Health have been able to recruit uh, to the area. They will continue recruiting uh, with the goal of getting it five days a week uh, from eight to four, and then uh, continue recruiting to get it seven days a week, 12 hours a day, and then continue recruiting to get it working into the evenings as well. Um, you know, at this stage, nobody is saying that uh, emergency services will not return to Whitburn, but while we are in a healthcare. care uh, uh, situation where we have a, a shortage of healthcare workers globally and recruitment is a problem this at least gets the center reopened and provide service to the vast majority of cases that would be seen
1: so uh, let's go I'll grant that recruiting is very difficult across the country around the world so we'll leave that there because I think people understand that to be true so to clarify it wasn't just always the long-term strategy, the plan to remove ER services from Whitburn, as opposed to just putting in urgent care, because that's a stopgap measure, or what people call a band aid. Possibly, so is was it always the plan to take emergency services out of Whitburn?
11: No, it was not always the plan, uh, Patty. I okay. think um, you know, looking to provide recruitment for the Whitburn center has been ongoing. Um, and the challenge of recruiting for the emergency department in Whitburn, um, you know, some time ago, uh, the department and Eastern Health had looked to what other alternatives can we provide to residents in the area to ensure that at least their uh, centre is reopened on a regular and uh, predictable basis. And doing this model uh, today gets the centre reopened, and gives us the ability. As I said, it is easier to recruit for an urgent care centre than it is for an emergency department uh, because there are different scopes of practice. So when it became evident that uh, recruitment was a significant challenge for the emergency department, we looked at uh, alternatives, looked at what uh, we could do to get the centre reopened.
1: Talking about emergency rooms, one of the quotes coming from you in the news story I read this morning says, "Our Category B sites such as Bonavista, Harbour, Brighton, based on the distance they are from an acute care centre, will certainly remain emergency departments. Yet the folks in Bonavista are showing up and the doors are locked. Uh,
11: yes. So again, um, you know, we've been working uh, and I I believe, you know, in very short order, we will have some additional news for Bonavista. Um the the challenge is uh bona has been one of the most challenging locations in terms of a category category b site in the province it's the one that's in the news most often certainly um but uh eastern health have been speaking with a number of physicians and i believe that uh, uh we'll, we will have news um in in very short order uh, on a more predictable basis for Bonavista. Uh, it has been challenging. Uh, we have been looking nationally and internationally to recruit. And, um, you know, I, I can say in terms of Bonavista, uh, you know, we did have a, a very solid run August, September, October, and November, um, you know, saw little to no diversion in Bonavista, you um, you know, we we started to see diversion again there, uh, leading into Christmas, and uh, and since, but uh, the the focus has been on recruitment for Bonavista, considering the distance um, to Clarenville, uh, you know, approximately two hours. There are other sites in the province as well uh, that you know we absolutely have to ensure. That uh, even though it's more challenging to recruit for emergency, uh, that simply because of the distance, uh, there is, uh, you know, that, that site we have to continue to focus on emergency services uh, while there is a, uh, there are recruitment challenges for Bonavista.
1: Are one of the complicating factors, the fact that there's apparently a disparity in pay between Category A, B, or Level 1, Level 2, is that the reality in Bonavista as well? Is that someone working in that ER wouldn't be paid the same as somebody, say, for instance, working at the Health Sciences Centre?
11: So, you know, I think it's public knowledge. I I know we did send information to folks in in Bonavista who requested the pay. Um, In a Category A site, a physician is paid uh, just under $1,800 for um, an eight-hour shift. In Bonavista, uh, it's about $3,200 for a 10-hour shift and then 14 hours on call. Um, you know, So there is a difference in category A and B. The fact is you're on call for 14 hours, uh, but the, the rate of pay is about $3,200 for that day. Um, the rates that we pay physicians are uh, negotiated with the NLMA, um, and uh, you know we we stand by and and respect the, the relationship we have with the NLMA, uh, but physicians are paid very well in Category B sites. Uh, Bonavista, as an example, got an enhanced rate uh, because of the distance and population, and then further enhanced again in December of last year, and uh, just recently. We further enhanced the rates for Bonavista again because of the uh, the challenges, and all of that was done in consultation and uh, uh, you know with the NLMA. We we can't arbitrarily make a, a rate in in a uh, particular site, and there's a reason um, uh, you know we work with the NLMA, and it's uh, to ensure stability uh, throughout the entire province and and that doctors are treated equitably equitably and, and fairly.
1: Uh, We'll see if we can get through a few quick ones. Uh, Back to urgent care in Whitburn. If 80 to 90% of folks who presented at ERs could be treated in an emergent care centre, what do you say to the 10 to 20% who can't?
11: Well, so it's it's the life threatening um, that is a higher scope of practice and is harder to recruit, um, obviously. So uh, we are saying, uh, you know, Whitburn is located literally. Uh, between three uh, acute care centers. Uh, you're 15 minutes from the Whitburn Clinic to the, the clinic in Placentia. Uh, if you live somewhere between the Whitburn Clinic and Placentia, it's shorter. Uh, you're about the same distance from Whitburn to Carbonir, And again, if you live somewhere between the Whitburn Clinic and Carbonear, it's, it's closer than that. And and similarly for St. John's. So if it's life-threatening, um, we you know we ask people first of all you know uh, there is 811 uh, there is also um 911 we have eastern health has taken over the ambulance services now in the whitburn area the ambulance services are staffed by both advanced care paramedic and uh, primary care paramedic uh so You know, they're well-staffed ambulance services, uh, uh, you know, uh, with with a a solid scope of practice in the area that can lend, if it is life-threatening, the advanced care paramedic have um, advanced skills and are able to help respond to that uh, while a transport is taking place from Whitburn to an acute care centre where a life-threatening condition can be properly dealt with.
1: Uh, Let's stick with ambulances for a second. So whether it be Smith's contract cancelled in Whitburn, the fewers pulling out of Trapassi, fewers or Ryan's up in Cape Royal with nobody staffing it. A very quick one first. Up the southern shore... Why couldn't the health authority or the department put out a public service announcement to tell people that likely your ambulance is coming from St. John's so they can make their own personal decision in their own car, meet the ambulance halfway, make their way to the health sciences because time is of the essence for many of these circumstances. Say, for instance, someone is suffering the early symptoms of a stroke. So why not tell the people what was going on before they found out the hard way? So, you know,
11: throughout the province, there's approximately 30 uh, private ambulance services Whenever an ambulance service is on a, a run, the, you know, it, it, it uh, leaves a void in terms of that ambulance being able to respond to another run. Um, whenever, you know, it, it, Logistically, you
10: know,
11: how would you uh, be able to, throughout the province, with the number of ambulances, with 30 uh, private ambulance services, Uh, be able to put out a public service advisory every time an ambulance moved. Um, And, uh, you know, there was... uh uh, but this, this
1: isn't an example of it. it's just it happened out of the blue and we didn't know what was happening. It's been happening for months. And so if there was an enduring issue with fewer or Ryan's provision of ambulance operators, whether it be advanced care or primary care paramedics, if folks knew that there is a problem here, the ambulance might come from Holy Road or maybe come from St. John's because it wasn't just this week or maybe next week for a stretch. It was an ongoing concern since Boxing Day. So I'm wondering why we just couldn't tell them to expect this and they can make their own decision as to how they want to proceed.
11: You know, so there is 911. Uh, if somebody contacts 911, and we do have news for for uh, the Southern Shore area, and I'll get into that in a moment. Uh, I guess breaking news on your show, uh, which I, I tend to enjoy doing with you, Petty, but um, there are 181 uh, ambulance service vehicles that are operated in the province. You know, the expectation of being able to say that an ambulance is uh, is moving uh, or put out a public service advisory, I don't, I'm not sure that that's even possible. Uh, but the the service in has been living uh, up to the contract provisions in that area. Uh, there is mutual aid if uh, the ambulance is not available. Um, there are there's mutual aid from neighbouring services or from Eastern Health. Um, But the understanding the concerns of residents of the area uh, and understanding that the operator uh, in Trapassi has provided the 180-day notice uh, to uh, end the service in the area. Um, We have been looking at the challenges, uh, the geographic uh, challenges, the uniqueness of that area And we're looking at a rapid response unit, uh, which will be a mobile unit uh, staffed by an advanced care paramedic who has life-saving advanced skills to provide regular service and be stationed in that area. If somebody is waiting on an ambulance, uh, we have the rapid response unit that will be available to the area. Um, and can tend to the needs of the individual and provide life-saving skills while an ambulance is en route.
1: Okay. What's the uh, breaking news for Cape Royal?
11: Well, that is it.
1: That's it. Okay. I'll just make it short sure because I didn't know if we were bouncing from Fjords and Trapassi to Ryan's and Fjords yep. in Cape Royal. So this, okay.
11: Yeah. So this would be for that uh, southern uh, shore stretch of highway.
1: Fair enough. Uh not to take away one single thing from the well trained professional paramedics uh, in this province, but is there going to be a move for a one size fits all, a public offering, no disjointed private contracts and difference in services, a rate of pay and on call and all that stuff, like in British Columbia? The province runs it in its entirety. So there's a level playing field across the board and the regional health authorities would be responsible in full, not to monitor contractual obligations with the private sector, but to offer ambulance services, ground and air under one entity. Is that a plan coming in this province?
11: So what I can say there is under the health accord, uh, they call for an integration of uh, ambulance services, looking at road ambulance, uh, rotary wing and fixed wing uh, services. The, uh, the government has been focused on that. Uh, the the new provincial health authority uh, and the uh, the regional health authorities have been working with government to look at what integration looks like. At this particular stage, uh, government's review of that health accord recommendation uh, is under active uh, consideration. Uh, we are uh actively working on what that would look like but it would be premature uh, to announce uh any decision on what that is going to look like until we are uh more ready to indicate what it's going to look like uh, but it is being worked on and uh, models in other jurisdictions are being reviewed Uh, so that we can look at best practices and put in place the best possible system for Newfoundland and Labrador.
1: We've heard some terrible stories coming from long-term care in the recent past. Acts of violence, patients being badly beaten. So... You know, there's a lot to discuss inside this long-term care, personal care review. I just want to throw a couple of stats at you see how you're going to incorporate these into your review. And then you can speak to separation of couples or whatever you see fit. Use of physical restraints in long-term care in this province, 14.2 resident, 14.2% of residents are in restraints. The Canadian national average, 65 Then you move off into antipsychotic drug use. In this province, 38.3% are receiving an antipsychotic drug. Canadian national average, 219 How do you factor that in to understand why we're so different? Than the rest of the country to begin with, and then we can talk about separation and violence and what have you. What about those numbers?
11: So there are a number of issues. Um, I, you know, I would say issues, concerns, um, concerns that have been highlighted recently in terms of how residents are, are um, uh, treated in in isolated cases, but uh, nonetheless uh, unacceptable uh, cases. If there's one case, even though it's isolated, it is one case too many. So the review of personal care and long-term care in the province uh, is designed. uh, It is an expert advisory committee um, that is put together. uh, People who are well uh, trained and and have a a very solid understanding uh, of long-term care Um, we've had communication from the seniors advocate as well and looking at uh, putting in place, a, I guess, uh, an advisory group uh, to that group of people with lived experience. And and that is something that uh, we are looking at in the department as well. But this advisory committee will provide advice on all of these issues uh, on how we can provide the best service, to residents and the best working environment to the healthcare professionals that work within the system.
1: Uh, Before that review report is uh, produced, is there going to be some move made on the separation of couples entering into different levels of care?
11: Yes, there will. So the review will give us long-term answers. Uh, The challenge, if there's a shortage of long-term care beds and you've got somebody with higher acuity need... Um, in order to keep spouses together, you're putting somebody with lower acuity into a bed that there's a, a very solid demand for higher acuity need. That's the challenge.
1: And so does that so, mean we simply have to uh, manage admission eligibility rules to ensure that couples are not separated, similar to what they've done by legislation in Nova Scotia?
11: And so I'll talk about Nova Scotia for a moment as well, uh, but to answer your question directly, Um, Looking at admission uh, criteria is part of the answer. Uh, The longer-term response and answer to this will be provided by the committee. There is a shorter-term response uh, that we are working on within the department. Um, I absolutely want to resolve the issue of spousal uh, separation. Uh, I've used the example of my parents who are married uh, more than 60 years. Uh, I would not be happy with one of my parents needing long-term care and the other uh, of my parent being separated from them after spending an entire lifetime together. I want to get okay. this resolved. In the short term, we are looking at uh, how we can resolve it in the short term while we're waiting for, um, you know, a very methodical plan on long-term solution. Um, in regards to Nova Scotia, I think we can do better in this province. Uh, I know the opposition use Nova Scotia frequently, but every time they do, we, we investigate Nova Scotia and find out we can do better. In Nova Scotia, they have legislation around this. It doesn't mean that spouses live in the same facility or in the same room. It means that they locate one spouse in a facility close to another spouse. That's right. There's still, spousal separation, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, they, they or, still do indeed uh, have some eligibility management adjustments that are in place uh, in addition to facilities close by. I'm way overdue, so hopefully, this could be a, a, a short answer. How many uh, healthcare professionals have been recruited from Ireland or India?
11: Uh, so, we have a number of uh, healthcare professionals that we've made offers to in India. Has anybody um,
1: accepted an offer yet? they have yes
11: uh, so now in india for example it is the immigration process um it'll be another three months or so before we see the first of the indian nurses arrive in newfoundland and labrador um but yes uh we are seeing success
1: do you have a um, a, a number of specific offers that have been made in ireland or india uh, you know it remains to be seen how many will be accepted but do you have a firm number from both of those countries
11: I, not off the top of my head. Uh, we, I know the Department and uh, the Department of IPGS are working closely on um, all of these, where um, immigration to the province uh, is one of the barriers. I'm working with the federal government, as are other health ministers across Canada, on lightening uh, the barriers for immigration, expediting uh, because of our
1: need for health care professionals. Appreciate your time this morning, Minister. One final word. I just want to
11: say, um, recognize International Women's Day, Patty, and the importance uh, of this day for uh, more than half of the population of Newfoundland and Labrador.
1: Here, here. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. It's Tom Osborne, Minister of Health and Community Services. Take a break for the news. When we come back, Lucy, you're there to talk about windmills.
2: Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line
0: on
1: VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Lucy, you're on the air. Hi,
10: Patty. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing okay, thank you. How about you?
10: Oh, good. Um I'm... Actually, really glad that you have this show because people can call in and, you know, freedom of speech. It's a pretty good thing. (laughs) Um, I wanted to talk about the windmills there a little bit. Um, I, uh, you know, I've been getting hearing buzz uh, from our Newfoundlanders about the the windmills coming here. And, uh, you know, I have heard quite a few concerns on the environmental factors. Um,
1: Just so I know what we're talking about, Lucy, windmills coming where in particular? Because there's a variety of proposals.
10: Uh, the windmills that are going to be taking up our lands here in Newfoundland.
1: Anywhere in particular or just in general?
10: Just in general. Okay. Um, and uh, a few people are saying, well, at least we'll get electricity out of it, you know, so that will be okay, clean energy. Um, it's my understanding that we're not getting any of the energy coming from them. Um, it's just, uh, to me, it's it's a concern about the, the vast amount of our lands and our water that they're going to be using. Um, once constructed, um, I was told that the uh, the maintenance will just be approximately about 500 jobs uh, just for the maintenance. Um, the concerning is uh, there are several concerns. Basically, um, the marine life is one. Um, over in Denmark, they had the problems with the sound waves and stuff and the whales and the fish will migrate out and the whales were coming up on the shore, you know, um, one
1: just- thing on that front Lucy those issues are absolutely real but at this moment in time there's no talk of uh, mimicking that potential problem because these windmills will be onshore versus offshore
10: okay and okay what about yeah I uh, what about the wildlife like my, my my concern too like we got the moose the birds the bats the bees the bugs everything all, all you know works together um, basically like what I'm wondering is um, like you said, the question is, what is in it for us? You know, that's a vast amount of land they're going to be using and our water and stuff. Like, like, as we the people, like, it's no so good to protest. Like, it sounds like the decision is already going to be going ahead. Like, for my question is, us as Newfoundlanders, we, we value our lands. We value our our trees and our breathing air. And, and, and you know, there's going to be oil coming down in there in our lands from that as well but like my question is like as the people of newfoundland we the people what can we do like protesting i don't think is working very well like people are asking me i said i don't know what to say i really don't know what to do about this if you don't agree with it it isn't it newfoundland and labrador's land isn't it our land like like shouldn't we have a say or maybe put it put a a vote out, or I don't know. Like I'm just asking you, like what do you think we should do? Because there are a lot of people who are very concerned about what are we getting back out of this? We're taking all of our lands, we're using the water. You know, until their costs are recovered, could take 12 to 15 years. We may get something back. That's not good enough.
1: Yeah, I mean, there is there are major opportunities in this world for the thirst for hydrogen and there I think there's a semblance or the sense that there's a race to be in on the ground floor Hopefully that doesn't lead to poor decision making because, you know, it's one thing to want to get there quickly, quite another to do it properly. You know, the concept of social license coming from one region or another, whether it be out in Botwood or on the port of port Peninsula, I don't know how that gets factored in. The question that I've been asking, and many people are frustrated with it, but so be it, is what's in it for us? Because, you know, the water royalty doesn't kick in until capital costs are recovered, which could include some fanciful bookkeeping. And, you know, we do have to ask those questions. There are going to be jobs. There's no question. Like uh, even out in exploits where they propose 300 windmills, they're talking about uh, 2,000 construction jobs, 500 permanent. So there's no way that all 31 proposals are even really all that serious, I would suggest. So the 1.7 million hectares of crown land, it's not going to see windmills on all of it. I just would be absolutely shocked if that was the case. But there are some of these projects coming to a, town, to a town near you. It's going to happen. I'm pretty confident in saying that out loud. Now, there's a long way between what's in it for us for some jobs versus what is the leave behind uh, environmental concerns because they're real exactly. and no one can deny and, and, them.
10: And, and, and that's that's the thing that, that's my concern. Like, Are we going to be in a situation like Churchill Falls again? I mean, once this is done, we can't undo it.
1: No, there can be some reclamation efforts made if and will this is going on. But I do think, you know, I don't know how you consult every single person on every single project through every single industry. But the province but this, finds is a very ser-
10: this is a very serious, like, concern. I think they're
1: all serious, though. Like a mine expansion is a serious issue. Uh, uh, putting another offshore production facility is a serious issue. You know, the way we handle forestry is serious. So I don't but think anything not affecting
10: is. Our, they're not affecting our moose and our wildlife and our birds. Oh, yes, they are. Yeah, yeah, they are. Not as much as cutting down all of our trees. 1.7 million hectares of land or whatever. I mean, that is a lot of trees that are going and a lot of wildlife going there.
1: Yeah, but that, that's, it's not going to happen to that extent, I, I don't imagine. And there is going to be a balance between environmental concerns and environmental protections and the creation of jobs, which is something that I think even people in the certain regions where we're here really vocal pushback, there got to be some folks in those homes thinking, you know what, I could use a job. And this one looks like a good, uh, long-term, well-paying job that would be nice to see come to my region. Economics have to be factored in here at some point. How, what that metrics looks like and where the balance lies, I don't really know. But I do think that ultimately people will be thirsty for jobs. But we can't just be you know, lackluster about environmental protections and what it really means because it has to be a big part of the conversation. I don't think anyone disputes that.
10: No, and, and the amount of jobs, like, like constructing is going to be a lot of jobs, but once the maintenance, like, I think I heard something, something going to be five, like 500 jobs or something. I mean, so we're going to give away our lands and, and our trees and our water and all that, we don't know, until their costs have been covered, recovered, then we're like 12 to 15 years. And then, you know, I just, I just like you said, why isn't it for us? And my question is, we as the people of Newfoundland and Labrador, what can we do?
0: What
1: I, I don't know what the answer is, but there is something in it for us. Whether or not we maximize the possibilities or the potential for financial rewards, I don't know. I mean, I, I still do think that maybe a staggered royalty on water might have been a little bit better than waiting for the entirety of capital costs to be recovered. I don't I, know how.
10: Absolutely. How did that decision even get made? Like, that is ridiculous decision that I've ever heard in my life. That's just our resources.
1: Yes, I know, but I I do think there's got to be some attention to whether or not people have something to do, a job, because some regions, if it isn't going to be, like, for instance, out in Botwood, they seem to be really quite bullish on this. The mayor of the town, uh, Mayor Sevier, says, you know, when Abitibi pulled out, the population of the the community dropped in half, and consequently long-term sustainability becomes a real uh, clear and present question that needs to be addressed. So. Some people will lean entirely on jobs. Some people will lean on royalty. Some people will lean on environmental concerns. How you balance them all out to come out with an appropriate decision is, I think, that's where the trick lies. And I'm glad it's not my responsibility, but we'll see where it goes, because I do think some of these projects will absolutely go ahead. And in some form, it's going to be very good news for regions. But I appreciate your questions about the social license and what people can do. The protests uh, that happened in Mainland, of course, the court injunction took them off-site. People are filling out petitions and making their voices heard on this show and with their members and all the rest of it. So I guess it's the same sort of approach taken to a variety of other development questions in the past as to what people could or should be doing. I'll give you the final word, Lucy, before I go to the break.
10: Oh, I, I just thank you very much for your time. I just wanted to uh, voice my concern on this in behalf of a lot of different Newfoundlanders who are very concerned on you know, our trees basically, it, it, trees are breathing, it helps our air. And you know, we have such a beautiful vest, beautiful trees and air here. Anyways, I just wanted to uh, voice my opinion on that. And as if to say, we should really look into this before, like, I think that we should be looking into this. And like you said about the water royalties and stuff, maybe switch that or something. You know, like, there's got to be something here in it for us other than jobs because this is serious. It's the environment resources.
1: Appreciate the
2: time, Lucy.
10: Thank you very much,
2: sir. Take care. Bye bye. Okay. All right. Final break of the morning. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5 30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show.
0: This is Open Line on
1: VOCM. Welcome back. Uh, let's go. Line number three. Reg, around the air. Well, uh,
12: Patty, uh, thanks for taking my call. And um, I'd just like to make a couple comments there about uh, Minister Osborne was on. And uh, first, I'd like to start off saying we, we finally did get our uh, town hall meeting off the ground last week. And uh, we had about, uh, well, slightly over 500 people at the school, and we had over 300 people who watched it online. So I'd like to thank everybody for coming out and who watched it and for a lot of people who took part in it and uh, told their stories and... Uh, Raise some issues so I just uh, listened to the, the minister on there talking about uh, the urgent care situation in, in Whitburn I mean uh, so why, do, why don't the minister uh, re- think that that wouldn't work in Bonavista when, the, when the, the days that the hospital is closed and the doors are locked I mean we have all staffing in place there we have nurses nurse practitioners everything we don't have to recruit anybody I mean, we could go into that uh, mo- uh, um, mode for for the days that is we're in lockdown. Uh, I mean, and that would, like he said, cover eighty or ninety percent of the patients who show uh, who present at the the hospital, and the other people who present at the hospital, if if they need to be uh, ambulance to Clarendon, fine. And I mean, so this has been going on in our area and with with staff there since uh, last summer, and. He also, he also re- referenced the fact that Bonavista, they're still concentrating on the ER, which is, which is an excellent thing. And he, but he keeps coming back to recruitment. Why is, it, why is recruitment the issue in Bonavista when we know we had three doctors all last summer willing to go to work in that ER? The question is not recruitment. The question is money and pay. And, and he said that we are getting close to, to have an equality in pay. But, Patty, we're not close, and we're not getting close. And until we close that gap, those, those doctors are not going to sign. And I, would, I don't blame them, right? Why would they sign for less pay?
1: Well, it's a question I, mean, I asked it, them, and apparently that's not necessarily anything to do with the minister directly. It's a negotiation no. based on conversations and, and collective bargaining with the NLMA.
12: Exactly. So why, why is it that from July of last year, I brought this up uh, when I caught before, from July of last year, uh, the, the, the premier spoke that they would be, be talking to the NLMA because that was where the issue was. And up until last year in November, we have an email from the NLMA where they state they did not have any contact. The government made no contact with them between July and November. So where's the negotiations that they were having? And, you know, the first offer that was made to those three doctors was in December. The second week of December, the first offer was made. And that offer basically brought those doctors to about 70% of the pay they were going to get in Clarenville or in any uh, Category A site. So, I mean, why is the, why was there a five-month wait period before there was even any uh, negotiations started?
1: Oh, I, I don't know. I mean,
12: minister, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things here the minister is talking about, but, I mean, in reality, it's not what happened, right? So, I mean, and, and, and he talks about, okay, uh, Whitburn. Yeah, I mean, they got major problems like we got major problems. But what happened in Whitburn? Like, what what did he do with their staff when he closed the the hospital originally? I mean, they had nurses and stuff there. So they must have moved them somewhere else. So, I mean, if they had any intent of really doing anything in Whitburn, why didn't he just keep the people they had and try to recruit more, not move them on somewhere else and then try to recruit a full staff? It don't make any sense.
1: Well, there's a, a bunch to this. Okay, so for starters, you know, when the minister described the rate of pay and the hours worked and the on-call requirements, if I'm a doctor, I don't want it. I just don't want that. No, you that's don't. Not, that's no. not the life I want to lead. I've got options elsewhere that probably pay me more for less stress and less commitment. And so that's the trick here. I think, we, you know, we focus in on whether or not the recruitment strategies work, whether or not uh, we pay them enough. When, in fact, the doctors that I know, they would be happy enough to, ha- you know, 10% less pay but removed 25% of the stress because they're burnt they're burnt to a crisp, and I totally get it. So if I'm a doctor, I'm not accepting that offer of Bonavista, to be honest.
12: But Teddy, exactly. Why would a doctor come into Bonavista for less money and 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 be on call for twenty four hours? I mean, it don't make no sense. Like the the numbers don't make no sense because the minister said is is eighteen, basically eighteen hundred and fifty six dollars and something is the rate for an eight hour shift in in uh, Clarenville, right? Okay, uh, so. Okay, so three eight-hour shifts in Clarenville would be fifty-four hundred dollars or fifty-five hundred dollars. So in Bonavista, now a doctor comes in; they're expected to work, uh, do a twenty-four-hour coverage. And I mean, we got a lot of doctors coming in there now who are expected to do forty-eight-hour coverage. And we, we heard a, a story uh, at the meeting where uh, a doctor was in there and he was he had fifteen minutes sleep in forty-eight hours. Right. But in the meantime. Okay, so why don't uh, all out or, or whoever got to do is say okay? Why don't we just pay those doctors in Bonavista, put them on an eight-hour shift, and give them eighteen hundred dollars? You're gonna—they're spending the fifty-four hundred dollars in Clareville anyway, but they're getting the doctor in Bonavista to cover a twenty-four-hour shift, Patty, for thirty-four hundred dollars. Uh, I hear you, Eighteen hundred dollars,
1: Reg. I'm going right. to sneak on one more call uh, just before we run out of time yep. here this morning. But thanks for this.
12: Right on. And and thanks for taking my car. My pleasure. And have a good day. You
1: too, Reg. Okay. Right on. Bye-bye. Uh, one more before we run out of time. Line 2, Beverly, you're on the air.
13: Good morning, Patty. How are you?
1: I'm uh, okay. Thanks for asking. How about you?
13: Uh, not too bad. Um, I heard um, our Minister of uh, Health on there this morning, and I was sort of disturbed by what he had said. Um, I just wanted to put a little note out there. My husband was into... St. Uh, sorry to Health Science Center last week and had a small operation done. Meanwhile, it was uh, on his bladder, and I have to agree with what he said about doctors uh, assessing and sending people home. Uh, my husband should never ever have been discharged from the hospital. Uh, now I have nothing against the doctors or, and especially the one that did his surgery. He was awesome. And the nurses treated him very well, but he was sent out of the hospital, discharged after supper that afternoon. Uh, Meanwhile, they asked me, I'm from Trinity Bay, and they discharged him. So I said, uh, they said he had to come, like, you know, I was either go home or spend the night in St. John's. And he had to be back at the hospital again for quarter to eight the next morning. So for me to take my husband, bring him around the bay, and get up again at 5 o'clock in the morning, take him back to the hospital, uh, with a catheter in, by the way, uh, I, we couldn't do it. And as luck should have it, we were fortunate enough to be able to get a hotel room. Uh, and my husband and I went to the hotel room. He wasn't very well after all the anesthetic and everything that went on that day. 2 o'clock that morning, I ended up having to take him back to the health science because of blood clotting. And we were there till 7 o'clock the next morning, and, uh, or 6 o'clock, I'm sorry. But by 7, we had to return to the hospital because he had to see the doctor again at quarter to 8. And the next morning, his catheter was still full. They still had to flush him because of blood clots. So in my opinion, we are both seniors. Uh, it was unnecessary treatment when my husband could have stayed in the hospital. Less anxiety for myself and my husband, plus the, of getting him back and forth to the hospital.
1: They're confusing stories. You know, I guess the pressures to turn over beds like you're turning over tables in a restaurant uh, has become part and parcel with, you know, triage and admissions and releases or... Yes. Uh, unfortunately, Beverly, we've run out of time. We've got another few seconds if you'd like to add a final thought.
13: I just want to say our health care has gone back so far, and i like to agree with what they are saying about Whippern Clinic being closed. It is atrocious, and I just wanted to get my message out there. That there's many, many, many people like us, and I thank you for taking my call. And like I said, my husband should never have been discharged from the hospital.
1: I hope he's doing okay. Thanks for your time.
13: He is. Thank you so much for your time.
1: My pleasure, Beverly.
13: Yeah, bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: All right, there you go. Beverly had the final word, but we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonce King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. Talk in the morning. Bye-bye.